Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagle here once again with Adam Chemaluski as we dive farther into our 1980s month with our Cinema Dissection 1980s style as we take on the movies Red Dawn from 1984 and The Running Man from 1987? 87, 87. You bet. September 1987. There we go. So this is, uh, we're doing a little double feature here, and, um, you know, as, as we've done multiple times before, usually a cinema dissection is to sort of pull out and see, like, what components of this movie um, are interesting and what makes it a perfect movie. And, you know, and Chema, you as you can fill this in here a little bit too, we don't mean perfect in the sense that, like, it's the best movie ever made, right? Like, that's not what we mean when we say perfect. No, not at all. Like, number one, the term perfect is completely subjective. Like, as we have um, some of the movies that we have called perfect, I would say the Academy might beg to differ on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, but, um, yes, so, like, honestly, there's, it is, it's kind of hard to describe, actually. But, like, you're right, there's certain elements about the movie um, that make it perfect. I would think, like, timing factors into it where certain events occur in the movie factors into it. Like not to mention the time, but like how much time is devoted to certain things in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like when we did tremors, which was obviously still a perfect movie. And yep. it's one of the most perfect movies ever made. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't really need to go full throttle on the romance between Val and Rhonda. It's, right. you know, it's there, it's an element of it. And if they would have went any farther into it, I think it would have taken away well, from the actual, like, you know, the the product, the final product. It, so, it would have, yes, it would have slowed momentum in a movie that literally sort of, not just didn't say slowly builds, but every scene is building to the next one. And then mm-hmm. once it gets there, it's like a ball rolling downhill. It does not right. stop. The, exactly. So, like, and because the movie is done the way that it's done, you know, we call it perfect. But, like, if a overdone love story would have been in that movie, I... I'm thinking that maybe the perfect rating might be um, threatened a little bit. Exactly, exactly. However, in this case, we're not really looking for a perfect movie. And I'm going to go ahead and just, right now, I love both of these movies. I can say these are very far from being perfect movies. Of course. Um, Very far away from being perfect movies for various reasons. Um, But what we're looking for now, in this case, is what what makes these two movies the most 1980s. Uh, of, of movies, if you will. We're going to look for the things that stand out um, that really sort of are earmarks of their time. And there, and in that case, Chema, I would say that there are a lot of things that we're going to be able to point to that really put a big timestamp on these movies. If you had no idea, you know, if you were an alien or something and you only kind of were culturally aware of, of, the, of recent human history and you had never heard of these movies, I think that alien would be able to pull them out and say, oh, these are clearly from the 1980s. <laughs> Oh, I completely agree. It doesn't really get much more eighties than um, the discussion that we are about to have. Like yes. if I if I was wearing all denim, maybe. But since I'm not wearing all denim, it's it's getting as close as to the eighties as it could possibly get. I, you know what? I in honor of this episode, I cut my hair into a mullet and I'm wearing some Jordans. <laughs> I'm ready to fucking go. Um, nice. <laughs> yeah, not really. Rocking I'm barefoot. The, <laughs> so. Rocking the rocking the ewers, man. Yeah. Way to go. <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, like I said before, he's Chema. Chema, how are you doing today? I am doing pretty good, man. I survived two concerts back-to-back last week. I, that's a lot different as a 38-year-old than <laughs> yes. it uh, has it ever been at any other point in time yes, in my it life. Is. Oh, 
oh my fucking god but i had a i had a really really great time i had a good weekend uh we've had two really good weekends of uh college football and stuff so far um there's just some things happening in the college sports that I'm personally loving. Just I, I don't like seeing people hurt, but I, I like that Alabama beat uh, Quinn Ewers in Texas. Uh, mm-hmm. I am just loving like well, Ohio State's right now. I as much as I'm rooting for Marcus Freeman to succeed, I kind of am liking the fact that Notre Dame's been beat two games in a row. Same thing oh, with yes. Texas A&M, who I am not rooting for, but I'm so happy A&M is faulting. Yep. So all in all, it's been a pretty good couple of weeks dude and i am really excited to get into today's episode i am too it's going to be a lot of fun so like i said we are we are discussing red dawn and the running man and achema why don't you help me out with um with the opening we have this we have this sometimes we do a lightning round we'll like ask a question or something like that and you know try to keep it within a minute or two or or like a short shorter answer in this case we're going to open up with a line from uh, we're going to start with red dawn so we're going to open up with a line from Red Dawn. And Chema, I think you know exactly which line uh, we're going to be performing, or in this case, just yelling. Um, <laughs> so if on the count of three, if you want to do it with me, uh, we can both yell out the the to, the uh, the line that is become... Well, we'll do it on the count of three, then we'll talk a little bit more about it, okay? Okay, hold on one quick second. Um, let me... I'm not actually positive as to which line you mean. I didn't write. I wrote down all this events and characters that I just oh, didn't write down come any on. dialogue. The, the classic, the, the only line from Red Dawn that's worth yelling. All right, hold on one come second. Come on. It is. Oh Jesus, fucking Christ! All that hate's gonna burn you up, kid. I have no idea. There's a lot of Gemma. All right, I'll do it for you. Get, you count me off, and I'll yell it. Okay, three, two, one. Wolverines. Oh yeah, I gotcha. Come yeah, on, gotcha. Come on. <laughs> I, I know. I will be. There's a lot of lines in that whole thing, and you know, you're an Ohio State fan, so. <laughs> right, but no, I mean, well, actually, I, I'm going to get into that uh, about the dialogue. It's actually something that I have uh, a, a section about. But um, so this is sort of um, this has actually become a big thing recently with Russia invading, invading the Ukraine. Um, Ukrainian resistance fighters have been spray painting Wolverines in all the tanks that they destroy. No shit. Yeah, it's it's been they, popping up all over armored vehicles, tanks, gun positions, uh, Wolverines written real big and in, uh, in, in spray paint on stuff. Oh, that is really fucking cool, dude. And I gotta say, like they things have there's been some tides turning and tables turning in that situation in Ukraine lately. And um, I gotta say, like I'm really happy to hear about some of the positive gains that they've made. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so uh, <clears throat> so obviously here we're gonna open up talking about Red Dawn. Um, I'll just give you some some background info on uh, some you know general info background info on the on the movie before we really dive into the discussion. Uh, it's written and directed by John Milius, uh, probably better known for Conan the Barbarian at this point in time. Um, it's it's been a while since he's directed anything, but I think he still has recently um, you know he's been on like some screenplays and stuff. He's you know he's credited as a writer more recently, but. I don't. I don't feel like he's directed anything since the '90s, so it's been quite a while. I mean, he's like 80 some years old, so not, not totally surprising. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I noticed that his um his filmography and stuff like that. Um, while he's still working, it's it doesn't seem like it's it's as plentiful in the more right. recent years than it was in previous years. Right. Exactly. Uh, it's also written by um, Kevin Reynolds, who probably most notoriously um, had to wear the. I, this is. One of those things in Hollywood lore um, that so Kevin Reynolds is quote unquote the director of Waterworld, 
Um, but it's a lot of people familiar with the production think that Kevin Costner was actually the director of Waterworld. And mm-hmm. Kevin Reynolds kind of had to wear that. T- I mean, he obviously had, you know, he was heavily involved. In the pro- he wrote it um, and he was heavily involved in the production of it. But he sort of, I don't, I don't I guess to sort of save a little bit of grace for Kevin Costner, had to wear the director's, um, in this case, the fucking collar on, uh, on Waterworld. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember hearing something about that recently in one of the podcasts that, that I've been listening to writing-wise and stuff about that whole situation with Waterworld. And it was actually it was actually a really fucking fascinating interview. I'm just really struggling to remember who the writer was because it wasn't the writer of Waterworld. It was another, um, another movie. Right, because I think Kevin Reynolds was then put in movie jail for a while. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but those are your, your two your two main um, you know two most important people in terms of directing and writing. Uh, then let's get to the cast and what a fucking cast this is. I mean, it's absolutely bananas. Um, Patrick Swayze as Jet Eckert, the definitely our main character of the ensemble. Um, mm-hmm. Charlie Sheen as his brother Matt Eckert. Charlie Sheen's very first movie, which kind of blows my mind. Um, but Charlie Sheen's very first movie. <laughs> Um, then we have, uh, C. Thomas Howell as Robert. I didn't see if this was C. Thomas Howell's first movie, but it has to be amongst, amongst his earliest, if not. Um, and I don't think they gave Robert a last name. I don't recall it though. It was, oh my God. He it was, wasn't it, uh, Morris or something Robert like that? Morris, his, father, yes. his father was the guy with the gas station and yep, stuff. Robert Morris. Thank you. Yes, you're correct. Um, <clears throat> then we have Leah Thompson, as Erica, Jennifer Gray as Tony, Darren Dalton as Daryl, uh, his dad uh, Lane Smith, who uh, one of those another one of those actors that I always associate with 1980s <laughs> movies as well, uh, playing his dad as the mayor of Calumet, Colorado, and Brad Savage as Danny. Um, oddly enough, despite the fact that he looks like one of them, Brad Savage is not related to the other Savages. Yeah, I noticed that. Oh my god! Yeah, I I saw that and stuff like that. He does kind of look like him, but it's not related to him. And like Ben Savage is running for um, city council of West Hollywood right now, oh, and nice. like they even still kind of look alike, but are not, but they're mm. not related. They they definitely like it's one of those things. Like if you, I think if you just told someone like, oh yeah, Brad Savage, he's like the older brother of of Ben and Fred, yeah. you would be like, oh okay, I get, yeah, I can kind of see yeah. it and almost kind of hear it too, but. Like now that like that guy's in his probably in his like his, well he's like in his almost sixty, um, like he really does not look that much like them at all anymore. But as a kid, he definitely did. Um, but it's it is really interesting. I mean, so Patrick Swayze, I kind of forget how old Patrick Swayze was in the eighties, because like by the time like Ghost and stuff rolls around, like he's already in his forties. Um, mm-hmm. If he was, you know, if he when did he die? Two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Yeah, God, it's been Something a minute. Like yeah, but it's been a long time. He, I mean, he'd be seventy now. Uh, I mean, he's he would be quite a bit older than everyone else in the cast because Patrick Swayze's thirty-two at the time of this film. Like I said, Charlie Sheen first movie, he's nineteen. C. Thomas Howell is eighteen. Leah Thompson is twenty-three. Jennifer Grey is twenty-four. Darren Dalton is nineteen, and Brad Savage is nineteen. Um, so, like, you have some significant um, Hollywood star power literally before they were like stars which i find is very interesting yeah the cast in this is just insanely eclectic and you're right he did die in 2009 and stuff and like it is just insane to me to think that he was that old back then you Mm -hmm. know because he he 
number one, he doesn't really look like it. No, and not at all. There is, there is just something about, I guess, some of these stars that are, you know, from the seventies and eighties and stuff like that. And even like Stallone is like really, really old. And you just, you kind of just don't even think about it because mm-hmm. he's still like in, in kind of good shape, but you're like, man, it's just, you know, Stallone is pushing, like pushing 60, 70 years old or whatever. You're like, what? Like, Jesus Christ. It just right. doesn't seem like it. You know, there's like fucking celebrities not supposed to age. Right. Exactly. It's it just a weird, just a weird thing. And it, like, if you, when you go back through like uh, Patrick Swayze's like IMDB, like you see like how many credits he had prior to Red Dawn. Like he was, you know, already, you know, an established, not a star, but like already an established actor by that point in time. And I guess mm-hmm. also, we're also just very used to people who are like 25 to 30 playing high schoolers and teenagers. Like we're <laughs> very used to that. So, you know, whatever. Um, just quickly, I'll, I'll round out the cast here. We have uh, Powers Booth, um, the late great Powers Booth as Andy, uh, Air Force Lieutenant who crash lands uh, about midway into the movie. Uh, Ron O'Neill as Commander Bella, uh, the Cuban, uh, the Cuban commander. William Smith. There's some interesting William Smith trivia here too, as well. William Smith is uh, Stronikov, one of your Russian commanders. Uh, Vladik Shabel is Bratchenko, your other Russian commander, and Judd Omen is your unnamed Nicaraguan captain. Um, mm-hmm. And of that group, Commander Bella, played by Ron O'Neill, is definitely like your sort of antagonistic lead character, if you will. Right. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. So just real quickly here, just some f- things that I found funny that were both on IMDb and just <laughs> elsewhere. Um, John Milius just carried around a gun on set at all times. Not, <laughs> not really entirely sure why, like, but he was just like carrying a gun around and boy, does that fit with the vibe of this movie? It, uh, it definitely, it definitely feels like one political party paid for a lot of this movie. Would you agree or disagree? Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. There's definitely some um, Americanization of certain things, I guess, which I'm sure we'll get to here in a little mm-hmm. bit. But uh, yeah, you could definitely tell that there uh, there is some kind of ulterior motivation behind this movie. Yes, yes, just a little bit. Um, things that I love, um, there are no miniatures, no map paintings, uh, no chroma key replacements, which is just essentially early CGI this is all real explosions, um, all squibs, stunts, people actually falling down hills and stuff and getting thrown off of things. Um, those are real helicopters flying around with, you know, obviously not shooting real bullets, but like fake explosions all around the stunt performers. Um, it's just one of those things that just makes things feel a little bit more realistic uh, when we're actually blowing things up and things are actually being set on fire and people are actually falling down hills. Um, in fact, one of the explosions was like so intense, it knocked all of the production trailers like off their foundations. So wow. this was like a, and you could probably, you probably know which explosion, um, but in middle of the movie where they're escaping the camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, that one that was actually was very large. Um, so like, it's just one of those things like I, I, I am a sucker for, I am such a sucker for those real, you know, the, the real stunts, real explosions, give you as much real as possible. I mean, I, I fucking love it. And kind of one of the things that makes this um, a little bit more realistic is that the plot is based off of an actual CIA assessment of military we- U.S. military weaknesses and alliances that were based off of intel from basically ranging from like the 60s up to the early 80s. Yeah, you know something? I can I could definitely see that. And I know the CIA has got a lot of contingency plans and plans for various situations. So to me, it, it this 
is actually a um, a less extreme plan of the CIA's compared to their zombie apocalypse plan and some of the other stuff that they have plans for. Right. So uh, totally believable in that sense that this would be from some type for, from based in some type of reality, um, uh, a realistic situational assessment by the CIA. Right, right. In fact, two CIA agents were on set one day because they had um, someone called in reports because uh, this is actually filmed in New Mexico. And someone called in reports of multiple Russian tanks. Um, that there were so these tanks are apparently are so faithful to like the um, you know to the models the Russians would have been using that people actually called it in like um, we have we have some concerns here. There's like Russian tanks, <laughs> you know, zipping around the mountains and stuff. So like CIA, two CIA agents actually came to like sort of check out everything just to sort of, of make sure things were on the up and up. Yep, I I could believe that too, man. Like I, something like that, I think would happen even in this day and age. So that makes all the sense in the right. world, and it's actually kind of smart that the residents took notice of that kind of thing. I, good, I know it's a good thing. It's actually a really good thing. Um, I think we were more prepared for that back in the early 1980s, though. But um, so here, are like, so Jimmy, here are the three things that really stand out for me that make this like a very 1980s movie, and I'll as, I'll go through them one at a time. You know, give me your thoughts on this as I go through. So first mm-hmm. and foremost, I'm the cast. These are some of the most recognizable faces of the 1980s from some of the most memorable movies of that time. I mean, like, take your pick between Back to the Future, Dirty Dancing, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, I, I know I'm missing another Patrick Swayze movie in there that's like pretty iconic. Like, uh, like all of those, all of those movies are like ingrained, not just in 80s culture. Those are ingrained in like Hollywood like lore. I mean, those are iconic movies, and you have yeah. all those people in the, all those people in those movies are in this movie before they they really hit stardom. Yeah, I gotta say it's pretty impressive that um, to get, I guess like to get these people together at this time. Maybe that's not so impressive, but what is impressive is the fact that like all these people after this movie have gone on to have legendary to some of the wildest possible careers that Hollywood has ever seen with, mm-hmm. with Charlie Sheen, <laughs> Sheen and everything like mm-hmm. that. So, I mean, it, it's like, there are just movies that come around every now and then that have an extremely loaded up cast when you think about things retrospectively. And this is, this is definitely one of them. You know, I mean, we could go through God knows how many movies um, that came out 10, 15 years ago that have maybe not as stellar of a lineup but have maybe four or five people paired together that would mm-hmm. not to go to to have like big success or you know um le- longevity in hollywood yeah yeah kind of like the um i know we've talked about it a couple times before like the band of brothers thing from yeah. early 2000s like all the all the dudes who went on to i mean it's like eight people like went on to have st- i mean still like great careers in hollywood that you know started right. 18 19 years ago yeah, the Band of Brothers galleries from the Chive that I remember seeing from all the different people who are in that um, miniseries. It's just incredible. I mean, like, even you know, Tom Hardy makes an appearance in there. It's like, really? Like, yep. freaking Hardy? J- I think James McAvoy might be in James there somewhere. James first uh, screen credit. Yeah. Oh, wow. No shit. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like, it, it, it is just crazy how some of these projects, how some of these projects, we look at them um, many years after the fact. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And Jimmy Fallon, looking as he does in all movies that he's in, looking right down the barrel of the camera. Um, yes. scene. <laughs> fucking unbelievable. And he, like, he can't fucking help himself. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. I, like, we, like, one of my one of my roommates in college, we, like, had this, dis- I forgot what movie we were watching that Jimmy Fallon was in. 
And it feels like it was a more modern Woody Allen movie, perhaps. I, I can't remember, though. Um, and, like, Woody, or, um, Jimmy Fallon's, like, in the back, not in the background, he's but he's not, like, the main person in the scene. And you just see him standing behind two people talking, and he's just looking at you. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, how, like, we both just, like, he always fucking does this. Always. He always <laughs> fucking does this. And it's same in the same in his like couple scenes in Banner Brothers, people are talking and you just like if you like look over, he's like looking right at you. <laughs> it's like that he just wants the, the camera to catch every inch of that attractive fur to comedian face. Oh, it's just it's very bizarre. Why can't you just look at the people anyway? You're an actor, <laughs> right? Um, so the cast cast was the first thing. The second thing is is the story. We have a very pro military. Uh, movie in fact one that i would call you call it americanization i will call it jingoistic it is very i mean just the the opening um scroll is completely mm-hmm. um here I'll, i have it pulled i'll pull it up real quick here soviet union suffers worst wheat harvest in 55 years which i'm going to go ahead and guess uh, that means ukraine was uh suffering its worst wheat harvest in the last 55 years um Labor and food riots in Poland. Soviet troops invade Poland. Cuba and Nicaragua reach troop strength goals of 500,000. El Salvador and Honduras fail. The Greens Party in uh, Germany. Uh, Greens Party contains, gains control of West German Parliament. Um, demands the withdrawal of nuclear weapons from European soil. Mexico plunged into revolution. NATO dissolves. United States stands alone. Um, it's very much a very macho um reagan era sort of vision of like what because actually this is uh, uh, i don't know if you if you caught this this is an alternate 1989 this movie yes i read okay. about that uh, i think you should think in the wikipedia description it, it says in an alternate yeah 1989 yeah so it's actually a few years to the future so this is like a very this is a very um right-wing uh, jingoistic sort of reagan reaganite view of what the 1980s would have looked like Mm-hmm. Um, so this is very, the story itself is, is just very rooted in the 1980s. And of course, Russia is one of the enemies. Cuba is the our other enemy and Nicaragua is our other enemy. Of course. Um, right. not sure what Canada's doing. Apparently they're just hanging out up there, just letting whatever happen. But, um, uh, but yeah, like it's, it's very much a, it's very much a jingoistic storyline. Mm-hmm. Oh God. It doesn't get any more. Um, patriotic America that then this movie and stuff. I mean, my God, it's, it's pretty much in your face. So like you, you mentioned about the crawl and everything that crawl is just, you're probably talking two to three sentences minimum per title card and everything like on the, on the, the screen at a time. And like, they are just like written like in this, like, so like you're right. And this is kind of like aggressive macho kind of ways, like America stands alone and stuff like that, you know, which is how I'm sure all these people really view the, the world at that point in time. Like America is just on its own. Like we didn't like have any friends or whatever, mm-hmm. but um, so, you know, they really go right into it. And then the, the minute that you're out of the crawl, I think you're looking at like maybe like an establishing shot of the town. Then you cut right into the classroom and the guy's talking about uh, Spartan war tactics or uh, like Genghis ancient Khan. Greece Genghis war tactics. Genghis Khan, the Mongols. Yep. That's right. Yes. Yep. And talking about the way that they uh, surround in, in their invasions and stuff like that. There's also these images that are being flashed, which I think one of them is like a, an image of, it looks like it's in ancient Greek times. It could be Roman, like mm-hmm. a, some kind of thing that would be painted on a vase. So yeah. from the minute that you are in this movie, you could just feel like, world tension conflict within the world war like you you could feel it oh yes yes absolutely a hundred percent a hundred percent it 
just it is seeping out of this movie <laughs> every fucking frame um and then finally here this will be the quickest one action very analog action practical effects practical action sequences and i think what's most important something that gets lost by the time we get to the 2000s and obviously we get to the superhero genre of, of movies taking over everything um we lose this but in this movie our protagonists are never safe and right. with our protagonists never safe the the stakes are raised every time they go to battle um like and they they make it very clear from the beginning that these like kids have to grow up in a major way very quickly which again also makes them not safe from what's going on mm-hmm. right that's exactly right c studios it's amazing like what you could do with your audience when you don't announce that there's going to be five movies right away and stuff and this you know we'll, we'll get to the end and everything like that which you don't actually see bodies and stuff but mm-hmm. the, the fact that like that they ended there they were really not like safety and there was no element of safety. There was no easy way for these people to get out of a situation and stuff, you know, like sometimes when you, sometimes when you look at movies, you may look at a movie and be like, you know, that guy could have easily just avoided X situation. If he did X, you know, this was unavoidable and they really did a good job of, you know, establishing things with the land. Like we saw the, the blockade and stuff like that early on. So it's mm-hmm. like, okay, so these people are trapped and it's like, you know, then they're, they're on this mountain and, and everything like that. So there's not any real place or safe space area for these people to go. And you have like the, the free, the, the notion of like free America, but that's not even introduced until powers booth comes into the picture, which yep. is more than halfway into the movies. And like, if there was like how in Mad Max Fury road, you know, they're going to like the, the green place or whatever. That's kind of like this mythological place right. that they're trying to get to. You would have been aware of a place like this in the beginning of the movie, but, but it wasn't like that. There was no goal to leave. The goal was basically to survive, you know, right. there, I don't even think that I don't even know if, I guess maybe one could argue with this, but I personally don't think that the overall goal of these characters wasn't to defeat the Russians. It was simply just to live. I I think, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think it was survival and sort of the real, I mean, agree or disagree with this before we'll get, I won't get too far into this right now, but agree or disagree. Commander Bell is the only character with an arc. I mean, quite frankly, um, like, yeah. Oh he, yeah. He actually has, you know, starts off as the, you know, the commanding officer, the conquering, you know, the conquering enemy. And then by the end, not that he changes his mind, but he, you can tell he is tired of, mm-hmm. of this life. Um, you know, goes from, he goes from all into like, let's just like, I don't want to fucking do this anymore. But, um, uh, oh fuck. I, I totally lost where I was going to, I was going to tie this yeah. back to the kids. Um, but like the kids, like the kids go through arcs, but it's not like complete. Like the yeah. commander Bella went through yes. this, like what an arc is supposed to go to where the situation around you and the character's reaction to that changes the character, him being so sick and tired of being in the situation and stuff brought about a change in him. The only like in this may just be me and, and believe me, totally feel free to add on. Let me know I'm wrong. What, whatever, um, whatever this mm. entails. But um, out of the kids, like no one really has a super clear emotional arc. Like, and at least like when you say the arc in the sense that it starts at the beginning and ends at the yes. end. Like, C. Thomas Howell went through an arc. But his arc was complete probably 
halfway, maybe more than halfway into the movie yes. because he goes from, you know, like kind of, you know, naive, like, you know, naive Colorado high school student to, yeah, like I'm sticking with Jed in this war and I'm going to kill people. He's killing people very easily and stuff as we get to the end. But that change in him was done long before he meets his maker at the, in the big, you know, chase sequence with the helicopters. Mm-hmm. So even like Jed and Charlie Sheen, undergo some type of arcing but their arcs are more what i would consider to be complete not at the end of the movie it could be anywhere from 50 to 75 percent of the way into the movie would their arcs officially be complete like jed was a changed guy maybe the second or third time we saw him sitting off by himself Mm -hmm. but he wasn't like there wasn't any real evidence of a completed arc by the time we got to the end of the movie. And there may be something in the subtlety there where like, okay, yes, his arc is a hundred percent complete. Then the writer may be able to give me 15 minutes on why, but I just personally don't feel that his arc was clearly completed in um, the course of this movie. Yes. Thank you. You, you def- you've actually filled in a lot of what I was thinking there. I just like lost that it, it is, it is more of like the idea of like survival is that is the end goal for the characters as they're being written. Mm-hmm. So there really isn't the arc is very short. You could almost call it a shift, right? Like the characters shift from kids who are just, you know, one day going to high school to survivalists in the woods. And there really right. isn't, you know, what they're doing is, I mean, there are goals, obviously they want to, you know, free the people in their town and, and take a chunk out of the, out of the Russian, um, the Russian Cuban Nicaraguan coalition. But there isn't, you're right, it isn't until the very end of the movie when they tell Danny and um, uh, and Erica to, you know, head for the planes, head for free America. That's the only time that we someone has a goal outside of just survive and cause havoc. Right, and even the, the cause havoc part of that, that's not even really established till about a third of the way into right. the movie. I, so, right. like you're you're really just fundamentally like looking at survival all the other stuff is these kind of added bonuses that that drive the the mm-hmm. story till until the its ultimate conclusion exactly exactly it's a very and and yet I, i'm going to get to something here um about this movie in a little bit so i won't almost spoil it now so i'll just move on to the next part here um so i i don't i mean obviously there's the the tenor of this movie kind of you know, the idea of like Russia being the enemy, it is kind of, I wouldn't say this is predicting anything that's happening now, but there is definitely sort of an eerie feel to it. Um, you can just kind of pull some things from this, you know, Russian aggression, um, sort of the, the dire world economic situation that we're in. Um, mm-hmm. There's actually some, not, I know it's not specifically mentioned, but like when they talk about like the, the Russian crop harvest, you know, that kind of feels like the stuff that we hear with like all the climate change concerns and, um, certain right. staple crops that are just are, are, have been failing and stuff in various places. So, like, I don't, I don't really feel like this isn't one of those ones that predicts anything or really takes a shot at anything in particular. But it does, but it does um, sort of, it, d- it definitely gives you that strong sort of feeling, like, oh, there's just enough familiar here to kind of make this feel like, make it feel like, um, you know, make it feel like something un- uncomfortably familiar is how I'll, I'll, I'll put it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. Like, you're right. There's not too much like in terms of like predictions, you know what I'm saying? There's a lot of things that are relevant in this movie that are still relevant in like the the current times or whatever. But there's it's not like this movie is 
is predicting the future in the way that like idiocracy did, you know? So, um, but in terms of like this eerie familiarity to it, like, yeah, total fucking Lee. And like, even though the events that lead to the invasion are, you know, are definitely out there. You know, I don't even believe that we'd be seeing parachute landings of any foreign nations, even in the eighties and stuff. I think our Mm -hmm. radar was still probably pretty good at that, but it does like, it does raise questions that, you know, I, I, we as America and being protected by massive oceans on either side, and we have allies above and below us, it does kind of put us into this position where we need to ask the question, well, like, Hey, you know, like what if, something did go down here, you know, and Mm -hmm. that is going to be one of these questions that, you know, it's going to be asked until something like that actually happens, which is very, very slim chances, but it doesn't rule it out. You know, somebody could, somebody could attack us at any time. So it makes, it puts things into perspective. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. There's, there's just enough here that you're right. There's just enough here that like it it, it makes you um, you at least have to consider the possibility of some of these right. things. Um, mm-hmm. like, that like just enough. You know, I, we're not going to sit here like, oh my god, what if the Russians did invade Colorado? But like, mm-hmm. there is it's one of those. It is one of those things. You're kind of like, yeah, how would that work? And I guess, mm-hmm. and I guess the most effective way would sort of to be would sort of to come inside out essentially because good luck taking a coastline i mean there's still there are still you know gun batteries along like the california coast so oh yeah oh god yeah like i mean they're not armed but they could be armed very quickly if like we knew that they're you know japan was attacking across the pacific those would be armed in a heartbeat yeah and whatever is here on the coastlines for our protection we have it. We, it's just not in areas where like it could be seen by people like me just walking down the street and stuff. Right, like, right. yeah, no one's taken the coast and everything. But like, it does bring this question about like, yeah, well, like, hey, what if this whole thing just started right in the middle? Next thing you know, we have free America, stuff like that. Like, it's it, it is a situation that like you know people in Europe and even like people in Ukraine like they're facing this like right now, you know, and they, in Europe has been happening for God knows how long throughout all the entire course of history mm-hmm. of countries invading one another and stuff. So this whole thing gives the, us the opportunity to have the perspective of maybe somebody who is in a European nation that's seen invasion scenes, their freaking homes bombed by the Nazis or whatever, you know, it's, right. it's like, a, like almost kind of like an eye opening movie to a certain degree, because we just really haven't been put in the position to ask the questions that this movie makes us ask. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I actually, I actually, that's one of my favorite lines when, uh, when powers booth is kind of briefing them on like the, the whole situation. Um, and he just kind of like, they ask about Europe and he just says, now that Europe's sitting this one out, I guess they figured twice in one century was enough. And right. It's just sort of, I'll tell you what, one thing that this movie does really, really well, just little bits of exposition to sort of, to sort of fill in the world and make it feel like, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't just feel like we're invading a small town. We now realize that like the whole middle of the country has been compromised and mm-hmm. like you get that from Powers Booth's, um, you know, discussion about like, I guess they nuked Denver. Um Right. Uh, yep. It sounds. It also sounds like there's concentration camps in Texas, mm-hmm. and then we get the early on. We get the the uh, the radio, like the very sort of um, uh, the radio broadcasts that are very reminiscent of World War II. Um, you know, there's like codes. You know, there's obviously codes being shared back and forth of the radio. 
like there's the woman's voice says something right. about like the chairs are against the wall. John says hi, whatever. It it definitely gives you that sort of feeling of making this bigger, even though this movie obviously is extraordinarily contained to two locations. Right, and I got to say, like the containing the containment of it and the groundedness of it really did it for me. And normally. I feel like, and we'll get to this a little bit. But I, okay, I'm just going to try to save some of this for later. But the, the groundedness of it really, really did work for me. Yeah. And the fact that we got in these little pepperings of exposition, it just made me want to know more. Like, there could have easily been a Red Dawn 2 that's set in another part of the country for me and stuff. And Because it is just such an interesting topic. You know, it, is, it puts us in this situation that is it just asks a lot of questions. So of course we're going to want to know as much information as possible. And the fact that they gave us this information, a little bit of it here and there, it kept the focus on the characters in the situation at hand, but also kind of allowed us to like imagine this world around us and stuff like that, which there's just so much room and so much, it's so deep for information and exposition and stuff that like, I just, I really want to know more. Give me a map of the country. Show me where everything Mm -hmm. is. That's what I want to know. Like I, I I just love stuff like that. I I could see maps of countries divided up and information presented in charts and movies (laughs) in real life all day long. Oh, same here. Same here. That shit, for whatever reason, that's just catnip for me. And in a, in a, especially in a war movie, obviously, or, or a political movie. Like I love that shit. Right. Um, So just real quickly here, some things that never came to fruition that they do talk about. And this sort of, this is just one of those things that like, as we mentioned before, like, the United States is fairly isolated, even though obviously we have neighbors and we're connected to a whole other continent. But I mean, like the United States is obviously considerably, considerably more isolated than a lot of other superpowers. But, you know, like we are even even then, but because we are like the biggest kid in the block in our half of the half of the world, the idea that we would sort of let Latin America fail and let Mexico fail as states that like we are so intertwined with them in terms of trade, in terms of diplomacy and, and everything else. Um, you know, we get a, we get a shit ton of oil from Argentina and Brazil um, mm-hmm. and Canada for that matter. Um, you know, we, we obviously the Mexico to the United States trade routes are some of the busiest in the entire world. Um, there is no way we would let Mexico fail. There's no right. way we would let, um, you know, those, you know, not that like Honduras and El Salvador are like strategically are politically important, but they're strategically important. They're right in the middle of fucking of, of they're in central America. They're right in the middle of, um, of central of South and North America, right by Mexico. There's no way we would let these countries fail. Um, simply because if they did fail, you want to talk about a fucking door being opened up, a door would be opened up to the United States then, a huge one. Oh, yeah. Can you just imagine, like, what any of our enemies, like, would salivate at the mouth for the ability to put bases and station troops and uh, sail ships and war aircraft carriers and stuff, too? Like, that would put the United States at so much fucking risk and stuff, Mm. you know? And that's why, like... Even like all these like America first idiots and stuff like that, they would jump at the opportunity to join up a war with Mexico versus somebody else because it would mean a lot of potential damage in the future for the United States if anything close to us fell. You know, we we just can't we can't afford any like of our enemies to be anywhere near 
us in this hemisphere for sure. Yep. If if someone invaded Mexico or invaded Canada, they might as well have invaded the United States because that's exactly what's right. going to happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so just real quickly, putting aside, um, any, in, at least in my case, putting aside any remakes, cause there obviously was a remake 10 years ago. What is this, what does Red Dawn remind you of? Okay. So like in general, we're thought, we're looking at like any like war movie type thing. It's obviously not like, I'm not going to say like Saving Private Riot, but you could just insert about any like war movie into this and it would completely work you know it's just yeah. the war and everything like that just kind of resonates with um with people just in general movies and whatever yeah. um there is like there is this one movie i couldn't even, i could not think about it but it involves the idea of just like going around and like just like fucking up and like oh it's like in dune it kind of reminds me of like the um the second to last act of the david lynch's dune where like the fremen and everything are just going around and fucking up all yeah. of the uh the sand um the my the spice mining, the spice equipment mining. and everything yeah, like, like that you know where we actually see like the uh atreides leading the insurgency yeah Ex- exactly like so like when and being that dune was also shot in the 80s there was just something about the body mannerisms and maybe the celebration uh gestures that I thought were very, very similar between um, Red Dawn and like that particular arc in Dune and stuff. And then also, I mean, this is like, you know, insert any insert the dynamics of just about any like teen movie here. You know, these are younger kids. Um, They do go through challenges and adversities that younger people go through. Um, It it may not be an entire movie devoted to it, but like there is the idea of growing up. There is uh, maybe Jed's conflict with Harry Dean Stanton's comment about not crying anymore and being a man and being Mm -hmm. an adult and rising to face the challenges. Like that is something that rings true in in just about everybody's life, especially uh, if you're uh, somebody who is younger. And then even like with, um, with, uh, Erica's character played by Leah Thompson, um, her having this kind of unusual love for powers booth. It's, it's a, it's a young woman dealing with what could easily be the, the first love and stuff like that. And the the loss of love as he died. So Mm -hmm. there are a lot of these, um, more human elements of the story that are, are resonant with just about any type of, you know, teen high school kind of movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. They're, they 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 do it. They do a good enough job uh, of sort of putting that uh, putting enough of the teen drama in it to sort of remind you again that these are fucking kids. Um, However, they uh, just side note since you brought up the um, the uh, the the love the the sort of the the longing that um, that Erica has after um, Powers Booth Powers Booth's character gets killed. Um, there was an actual love scene between them, and like test mm-hmm. audiences were like, no. That's yeah. <laughs> that's even though they're not like they're not like wildly apart in age. Um, they, like at that point he would have been like forty, and she what did I say? She's like 23, 24. I mean, it, mm-hmm. like it, it's supposed to be a high school student. <laughs> like so, right, right. Like let's not like I, I realize that things were things were very different like in the seventies and eighties with this kind of with like these age gaps, but like mm-hmm. no. Um, it could have, they could have easily made it and they, and they sort of, I think they did a pretty decent job of cutting it. So it was a little bit more, um, I'll use, I'll use a term here. The, at least the way 
at least um, from Powers Booth to Leah Thompson, from Andy to Erica, um, the, his affection for her was more avuncular or like that mm-hmm. of an uncle. Um, yeah. It, it like, it, it, you know what I mean? Like he saw it one way, right. um, the way that they ended up editing it. And clearly she saw it a different way, which that happens to teenage girls. Like they, yeah. It, well, screw it. Teenagers. They, how many, you know, I would almost guarantee you one of the first people you were infatuated with was someone older than you. Of course. Oh God. Yes. It did. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so the, yeah, exactly. But they, but they, thankfully, they didn't uh, go down that that road. So that was that was a good thing. Um, you know, like so, I'm glad you brought up Dune. That was a really good comparison. Um, I actually, I ended up like going obviously for obvious reasons, shifting a little bit more to towards TV. Um, this is very reminiscent of Man in the High Castle, and mm-hmm. so much so that like it's the occupation and the invasion is the inverse of, excuse me, of Man in the High Castle, where. Colorado, you know, Kansas, um, Wyoming, the plains were like the plains and into the mountains. That was like the free territory in Man in the High Castle. That was, I think they just called it the neutral ter- neutral territory. I think was just what it's called, or maybe or something like that. Um, a neutral zone, maybe. Um, neutral zone, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, but instead we have it flipped here. Um, that the, this is in fact the active zone, and the other the other coasts are are more or less free America. And it's very, very reminiscent. And I'm sure this was, I'm sure they took a very big note from this. Um, even even down to the way the invasion looked. This is very reminiscent of video games, Call of Duty, Modern Warfare 2. Probably the best of the, of the honestly, I think it's the best of the, the Call of Duty games. So much so that it's been remastered and remade like three different times. It's fucking awesome. Mm. Um, but like even the way that they attack. Um, the, the Russians just parachuting into a suburban neighborhood and fucking shooting everybody up. Um, it's, it's wild. Um, and actually one of your story missions is called Wolverines in that game. <laughs> so clearly they, they took some lessons from, uh, from this movie. Yeah, of course. Like, I love, I love that, that, um, that it's worked its way into the Ukraine thing now into modern warfare and stuff like Jesus Christ. If, if Ohio, if Michigan beats Ohio state this year, we could have done something through this podcast. Yeah. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and make an assumption here. Cause I didn't, I don't recall seeing this in anything that I read, but originally it was supposed to take place in Calumet, Michigan, which would make more sense. Cause Calumet, Calumet Colorado is like, it's like on a fucking abandoned, t- like no one lives there. Like there's nothing. There. Yeah. Um, right. And Calumet, Michigan is it's upper peninsula. It's, I mean, you're, you're literally like 10 miles from Canada. Um, so like, you know, I guess if Canada was just ignoring everything, it'd be a, 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 it'd be a pretty logical stepping stone for an army to go from Canada to the upper peninsula. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm assuming, I'm assuming they kept, I'm assuming they named the high school mascot, the Wolverines sort of as a nod to the original story idea that it was going to be. In yeah. I remembered you saying that the story was like originally going to be set in Michigan. And that's the first thing that came to my mind when I saw that, the, like the, the school, the Wolverines, all that yeah. stuff. It has to be some kind of nod to it. Yeah. Um, not sure, but it, I, you know, if, if not, just a very interesting coincidence. So, <laughs> um, all right. So let's go to battle now. Um, I'm glad that we, I'm glad that we both picked, picked action movies because we can kind of, I, I love talking about action sequences. Um, so what, Chema, what about the Red Dawn action sequences pleased you the most? Okay, dude, I loved that this was very, very grounded, but like thrilling at the same time. And there wasn't, there was explosions, there was gunfire, there were other troops, 
but it wasn't like we're sending the whole goddamn fleet after these people. And you saw these characters facing very complicated, but yet like, but realistic obstacles in that type of situation. Like Mm -hmm. eventually, like if you're making gains against an army, like, yeah, they're going to keep sending stuff at you. They're going to keep escalating the situation. In the end, like being attacked by attack helicopters is, is pretty logical to me. So while, there is a noticeable fictional umbrella hanging over the movie. It's grounded in what I feel to be very realistic situations. And even if the situations aren't realistic, they did a really good job of making me, making me believe that this was a completely realistic situation. And that I thought really, really helped out the movie. And it kind of sets it aside from a lot of other like in quotation marks action movies of this particular era and stuff. So the fact that they aimed for a more grounded minimal minimalist approach to the action sequences in the movie when in comparison to others from this mm-hmm. era and others that we have seen it's it's fairly it's fairly light in comparison and I really dug that because it, it just kind of pulled me in more. I didn't have to look out for, or I didn't, I didn't have to watch like some of the big yet unnecessary displays of action and explosions and stuff. Everything seemed extremely believable. It seemed like every explosion is an explosion that would have happened. It wasn't just like, okay, we have 250,000 bucks lying around. Let's have our character who smokes throw a cigarette somewhere and it just creates an explosion yeah. for the sake of it. Every explosion was was needed, was used, served a purpose, stuff like that. So the grounding of these action sequences to me was some of my favorite parts about it. Absolutely. There is, like you said, this is this is pretty absurd um, in many in many ways when you really like sit here and think about it. But yet somehow I'm buying in right away to the realness of the situation. And I'm buying into the realness of the, you know, these teenagers, these like supposedly 15 to 18. Although I think they make, I do think they make a note that Jed is like not a high schooler. Like, I, I can't remember. Right. I mean, he's, he's one of those kids. He would have been the big football star. And then he stuck around town to work in the factory kind of deal. Right. Right, exactly. In the yeah. beginning, there's a reference of him saying he'll be at the station all day. And then at the end, when um, him and Matt go to their house, he picks up a photo of him in his football uniform. So it's it's definitely like implied that he's not in the same age as the yeah. rest of the kids. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So like, there's just there's like a, um, you know, like I, I buy in that these are real people, real kids in this real situation enough. Obviously, again, it's a fucking movie about Russians invading small town Colorado. But, like, I do buy into it enough, enough, and so much so that, like, even, like, their their tactics make sense. Like, mm-hmm. you're right. Like, they're not, they're not, like, blowing up. When Jennifer Grey sneaks into the, um, it has a title. I think it's, like, the American Communist Friendship Center or something like that. Um, it, it's, it's not like she snuck in and, like... You know, she snuck a bomb in that leveled the whole fucking block. It blows out the front windows. Very much like, mm-hmm. very much like a guerrilla terrorist attack would blow out the front windows of a cafe or something. Um, right. And obviously, you know, plenty of people died or whatever. But like, it, it like that's a believable explosion. The the way that they, you know, the way that they attack, especially like they're not until later in the movie 
which that later in the movie gets a little bit more absurd, but like their first attacks are on groups of like three to four people knowing full mm-hmm. well that they couldn't take on 30 guys with guns and like machine gun batteries, et cetera, et cetera. So like it does sort of just ground the action sequences enough that you like, yeah, I could believe it if, if these, if like, um, you know, the scene where, um, is it Jennifer Gray or is it Leah Thompson, Leah Thompson, where she's on her bike, um, by the gas station and the, mm-hmm. the Russian, ta- the Russian troops in the tank, uh, you know, cost her. It's 100% believable that if you got those three guys away from their guns, away from their tank, that, that the other three kids could take them out. Like, it's totally believable. Um, yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. It comes a little bit more unbelievable when they're firing rockets at jets and shit. But, like, <laughs> but like it's fine because you kind of – you are at least at that point in for the ride. Like, they're, they're becoming, by necessity, they're becoming better soldiers. Right. There's some intelligence to the way that they – planted the you know these attacks and i guess the way that the uh, attacks build in the terms of the stakes and you know the the feat that's ahead of them and stuff and for them to be shooting rocket launchers successfully or even even like towards the end when right before we learned out that daryl had that like chip and everything that the bug inside of him before he went to town and stuff for them to be going even engaging in combat with that number of enemies is a little much to be done early on in the movie. But by the time we get to the end of it, it's a little bit more believable because we've seen the characters grow a little bit into the situation. We're now a few months into this whole Mm -hmm. invasion. So it's a little bit more, I guess maybe practical if, if we're, if we're going to not say believable practical that they would be able to do such a thing later on in the movie. Yeah. And and even like their first combat encounter that sort of mishap um, at the, at the landmark, for the Arapahoe National Forest, um, it is like it's not organized well at all. Right, like they ac- they essentially accidentally kill a couple of Russians and have to scramble to kill the last guy. Um, like right. it's really disorganized. And then obviously, as we as the months drag on, they become better hunters. We have that scene where um, you know where Robert drinks the uh, kills the deer. Robert drinks the blood. You know, symbolic for him because he obviously changes after that as well. But mm-hmm. symbolic for the movie because all the kids change after after that, um, and right. and then they also do a good job of because they introduce Powers Booth, uh, you know, someone who's uh, an Air Force captain. Um, now, like it's sort of so we have the kids sort of gaining their own skills. Now they have an actual leader to sort of guide them through like actual military tactics. So it, it right. is the you know from step one to step whatever you know from step one to launching rockets at least the steps in between there are believable to the, you know, to the final battle. Of course. Yeah, definitely. The addition of powers booth, I think does add a really good shot of believability to the whole situation. That it's like, Hey, you know, now they have leadership and it's also, it is definitely within the realm of believability that after all this time, there would be Americans paratrooping in that maybe got separated, just kind of ended up there. Yeah. So, yeah, that I think also reinforces the, the situation that they're in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So how would these action sequences be changed in a modern version? Um, I think oh. you can lead off with the most obvious one if you want to go for it. Okay, so more, more, more guns, explosions, people, body mm-hmm. counts, vehicles. Yep. <laughs> like, yeah, there would definitely be a lot more of those in a, in a modern setting for fucking sure. Like, even that part, like, in the middle with, like, the 
controlled burns that they were, I mean, like the shooting or the controlled burns, you know, you see these blazes just kind of light up in the fire. You would probably see the biggest controlled burn explosion that CGI, like in the history of movies and stuff like that, just because you need to do that kind of stuff in a modern movie. Yeah, absolutely. There would be a a lot more, it it would be, in some cases, I think, this could be better served with more um, with, with certain um, effects being a little bit more of the top, but I, I, like as, as what you're pointing out is absolutely correct. It would be more everywhere where it doesn't need to be. There'd be more shit going on. Like that, that opening scene where they shoot the school teacher would have been like, I don't want to say that like we would have seen like dead kids thrown everywhere, but like it probably actually, actually probably in today's climate, we definitely would not have had that happen at a school. Um, but but like that opening action sequence where the rush where where the Russians are taking over would have been way more garish, way more over the top, and it would have been more about what you know, it would have been more about like the action versus our characters getting to safety, which is what the main scene is about. Right. Yeah, that sequence would have been a lot longer. That is for sure. There would have been more guns going off. There would have been more craziness, more hysteria, and the characters getting to safety would end up being. Like, let's just say, like, just for our argument's sake here, that that entire sequence, the characters getting to safety included, is about five minutes. You're probably looking at, in a modern movie, you're maybe looking at, like, 25 seconds of, like, the characters getting to safety and, like, anywhere from three to four minutes of just outright, like, craziness and hysteria, people Mm -hmm. landing, weapons gathering, the big... um, you know, maybe we even meet Bella at that point in time, whether he parachutes in or the one truck that's already there, he gets out, we get that early on. So there would be a lot more action, action stuff going off in a modern version in that yep. opening sequence than, than we got in that movie for sure. Yep. For sure. I think, and I think to sort of top it off, we would have seen the nuclear, ba- we would have seen the nuclear blast that destroys Denver for, like in the distance. Yeah. Oh yeah! Even oh if, fuck yeah! Even if I'm, and I'm pretty sure where where the where this where the actual Calumet, Colorado is, wouldn't even be anywhere close to it. Like you wouldn't be able to see it. You would have seen right. that in the background, 100. percent Yeah. Oh yeah. It would. Have, it might even have been one of these deals where like they even see the they see something that like um, whether it's the the remnants of light changing, maybe like a some kind of smoke cloud off in the distance. But yeah, your a lot of attention would have been focused on that. And that would have been like this catalyst element that, you know, the, the parachuting comes in after that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Or or would have been one of those things like when they get to safety. Right. Oh, like they're yeah. Up on the mountain. They can see it yeah. in the mountains or whatever. Yeah. That that then would it would close that opening arc. Then is yeah. the big explosion. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. Definitely. Something. Something else. And again, I'm glad that they didn't do this. Something else that it would have would have been changed for a modern movie is that you know we talk about how these kids follow you know it's like step one you know they got to crawl first before they can walk they got to walk before they can run and they got to run before they can be soldiers. The, in a modern movie, these kids would have been fucking super soldiers inside of ten minutes. Um, they would they would have been able to kill and i mean you know in the remake chris hemsworth is like our our main character in the remake are you you want to tell me that that chris hemsworth look at the motherfucker this guy wasn't like already ready to go kill fucking a bunch of uh, north koreans um so like it just sort of and i I don't know who i don't know about the rest of the cast like i said i'm probably never going to watch that version of of this particular movie um but like like the fact that like 
we have some like normal sized people um like that you know brad savage what is he like five foot five maybe uh, oh, i mean he's dude. he's as tall as like jennifer he's as like tall as jennifer gray mm-hmm. um like th- these these like the kids look like kids and obviously patrick swayze somehow looked like he was 19 for like 10 straight years but like it, like the kids look like kids and it, and they act like kids and they feel like kids that are trying their best whereas in a modern version you and i both know these kids would be fucking dangerous right away Oh yeah. They would be dangerous right away. They would, um, retroactively like supplement that behavior through, um, the kids' parents maybe being militant as shit or something like that. Or like, um, maybe through their wardrobe, there's like a particularly like specialized soldier guy or something like that. They would, they would establish such things like maybe visually you would get some type of action and then they would retroactively fill you in as to like why this person is the way they are. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, and, and, and if anyone out there's curious about the stance on that, it would make it worse. Um, so like we <laughs> just don't need it. So, um, so what are some other things, not even action sequences, just anything else that pops out in red Dawn that you like, you're like, okay, that wouldn't work in a modern film. There's just no way. Okay, well, we've covered, we've definitely covered one of them, which is the school incident. There's no fucking way in hell that that would happen now. And I remember, um, you might remember this too. It was was very small rumbling on the internet, but like when Obi-Wan premiered on Disney Plus, the opening bit of Obi-Wan takes us back to Revenge of the Sith when Anakin went all out on the Jedi oh, temple, basically kills the Padawan. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like the, the inquisitor that we learned throughout the show was, was there um, as a kid that the inquisitor saw Anakin kill all these people and stuff that when Obi-Wan dropped, I think Uvalde was a couple of weeks old at that point in time. Uvalde was still very, very fresh. And, um, I remember seeing some comments online where it's just like, yeah, like, can you believe that this happened like two weeks after Uvalde, like Disney and such poor taste, blah, 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 blah. Mm, Now, like now I, I don't necessarily believe that that's Disney's fault. I don't even really know if there's anything that they could have done to alter that footage. I I think personally it's just bad luck and bad timing, but with something like this, they're not even going to take that chance. And like, I even feel that, like, let's just say that Red Dawn, the second remake, gets greenlit today. They're not even going to take the fucking chance of having no. something like that in there. They'll rewrite it to, it could be, honestly, like, it could literally be, like, any other situation. I personally just would not want them to lose the footage of the parachutes coming down. Cause that is just kind of like eerily haunting when there's just all these parachutes mm-hmm. kind of happening in the background out of nowhere. But yes, this would, or sorry, no, this would not take place in a school in, um, in the opening. And then like, we, we also touched on one other one, which is just this idea of this like high school kid, older guy and stuff. Like I, I'm aware that like when maybe it was like, call me by your name and, in euphoria where they've been dabbling into this ideas and showing situations of younger people and older Mm -hmm. people. I I just don't think that that would, that that would work. And it would almost, and the way that it would be done in a modern situation, like it would be like the two of them off having walks, having conversation, there'd be actual like development to the relationship, which just would look really 
it would it would look really in poor taste. Not as as poor taste as a school massacre in the beginning of a movie, but we are definitely if the if poor taste was a train, this is definitely a car on the poor taste train. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I like I really think the problems like with the the problematic thing like between um, Powers Booth and Leah Thompson um, could have would have easily been solved by just making that soldier like twenty five. Like yeah. just casting a different right. actor, then it's not right. nearly as weird. Um, and, and in a modern film, I guarantee you that he, it wouldn't have been a higher ranking. You know, like if again, like you said, like if they greenlit this movie again to be remade next year, um, you know that it's not going to be a pilot; it's going to be a paratrooper who's like twenty two, twenty three. Like right, yeah, um, exactly. You know, helping them out and and sort of like the the school massacre thing. I mean. It, it doesn't like you, it doesn't need to actively happen at a high school. You could just have the high school buddies. You know, you, when we were in high school, we hung out together. You know, like mm-hmm. like, like your high school. You would have been on a weekend or something. You would have been hanging out with your high school friends. And yeah, ex- yeah. Simple as that. That that's who you end up grouping up with. Um, simply because of like you know like me me you Doug Syracuse and and fucking Kimbo were out hanging out and Russia attacks. We're together. We're hopping in the same car and going. Right, exactly. That is for fucking sure. And that would, in a modern setting, that would definitely work because you're not seeing dudes with guns ascending on an institution of education. like Shooting it yeah. directly and killing the teachers. Yeah, I could, believe me, if you want to talk about just like giving Fox News and the right wing like a, a gift of talking points with a bow tie on it, that is by far and away one of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and speaking of Fox News, uh, this is, this the overall feel to this movie is just such a it's it, it gets so close to like a right wing fantasy that I just mm-hmm. I just don't think this flies in the modern age. Um, it, it is it is like we said America stands alone. Everyone has a fucking gun. Um, you know it's 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 you and no one. Like Harry Dean Stanton gives a speech that's basically like don't fucking trust other people. It's just you. You are the only one who can do this because you're you you stand alone. You're you're gonna pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like I mean that's the speech that he gives basically. Right, right, of course. Yeah, this, as far as a right-wing fantasy goes, it really doesn't get any more of a right-wing fantasy than this. I mean, this is what these people want, and everybody having guns and war and all this kind of stuff. Like, I I don't even really know how one could capture that kind of, I, I don't really know how anybody could just, like, capture the same feel and have it still kind of be okay. It, it almost feels like if this movie was remade this would be like on the equivalent of steve bannon's titus andronicus where like the some rich right winger guy just like made the movie and it's just going to immediately fall into the categories of like 2000 mules in the video store or something like that but like it, as far as like a, a mass appeal I, I i just don't even think you'd you'd have it there's definitely people out there that love action movies there's people out there that love explosions and you know love a, a decent body count in a movie and in, in terms of like fighting and gun violence and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I just kind of wonder, I, cause I just don't see that those same people who like that kind of stuff necessarily turning out for a movie like this, you know, it's it just, I, I don't really know how it could be done. Right. Exactly. And judging by the box office for the 2012 red Dawn and the, and the reviews, no one turned out for that one. So uh, right. <laughs> I guess yeah. I don't think, I just don't think, I, I, not that this movie couldn't be remade or redone or whatever. It, it just has to change very drastically. Like it, it, mm-hmm. it, it can't be shipped like this. 
Yeah, and like I mean, dude, you'd be getting into so much shit over like who the enemy would possibly be, and yeah. I, I, I haven't seen Top Gun Maverick, but I'm, I've heard that they refer to the enemy as just as like a general term, whether yep. it's like they're the foreign going, invader, they're just going to war, they're just going to war, stuff like yep. that. I mean, the minute that you pin a face, a nationality, even certain color schemes on this enemy you're you're gonna be facing like a world of hurt it's almost like you're not going to get out of this so if it's like if you make china the bad guy you can't sell it to china which means the movie's probably not going to make as much money as you think or probably any money money, yeah for that matter yeah like are you going to go the middle eastern route because we that's been played out for 20 something years you know i mean there's still programs even being made today where it's middle east terrorism it's middle east this that and the other i mean you would even just have a general uproar from the middle eastern community just saying like dude bro like can we get over this now it's been years and stuff so i i feel that like the middle eastern community there'd be a major uprising there like and then you know for a fact that like it's hollywood and if this is a right-wing fantasy the bad guys aren't just going to be white people you know there's like it's just white people killing white people it just doesn't necessarily seem like a uh a hollywood thing so you're kind of like screwed here and stuff, you know, just in terms of like who you're actually going to make the enemy. Like even, even Russia in today's world, like there are, there's probably easy 40% of the country that think, you know, Ukraine's attacking Russia and Russia's the good guy in that situation. So you're really at, you're really at fighting an uphill or up mountain battle. um, And there's real, no, there's no, there's no way that that is going to come out in your favor, like no matter which direction you go. Absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, I think you. I think you could. I think we will see some. We will see some movies and TV shows in the future with Russian hostilities. But I think the route to go is um, the route for this is to go like Man in the High Castle. Let's, let's do an alternate World War II, and we can all mm-hmm. agree that the fucking Nazis are scumbags. You know, we right. can. You know, or which is i'm just i'm I'm waiting for this sci-fi to take over we could do this movie as a sci-fi movie where there's fucking aliens and shit and they don't have to be you can map whatever country you want onto that if they don't have to be a country because they're aliens yeah exactly we'll call it green dusk and it'll be aliens and it'll be a hit green dusk i love it um so for you who gave the standout performance of this movie Okay, dude, this is no joke, but I really dug Charlie Sheen's performance for a couple of reasons. The the first reason being that um, it's good to see Charlie Sheen not as what we know Charlie Sheen today. Like, and I'm I'm guaranteeing you that he's he's probably a good enough actor that if given the right role, Charlie Sheen could easily knock it out of the park and be successful, maybe even see an Academy Award in the discussion as Brendan Fraser is now in an Academy Award discussion just kind of out of nowhere. So I believe it's possible, but it just doesn't seem likely. So nostalgically, it's good for me to revisit this point in time where Charlie Sheen wasn't the Charlie Sheen that we know him today. And the other thing too, that kind of stood out for me and was like, um, it was definitely unexpected. Like I said, I was so far removed from this. This could easily have been my first time watching it. And to have Charlie Sheen be the voice of reason character, the, (laughs) Hey, they're no, they're, they're no more different than us. Just, Number one, just a complete contrast from the Charlie Sheen that we knew to to be the voice of reason character. But I also feel that it was an important voice to have because as 
the movie, you know, got on. Everybody just seriously became more and more entwined in the war. They became better soldiers, hunters, shooters, all that kind of stuff. But throughout the course of the movie, at least, like at least until the the later part of the movie, we did not get the perspective of the the human side of it. Like, hey, these people are just like us. Granted, they didn't use the expression just following orders or anything like that. But adding this human element into it, I think, added some conflict, especially in the big killing scene with um with Jed and they're, they're killing the soldiers after the, the attack in the winter time yep. when the, the enemy's all dressed in white and stuff and see uh, Thomas Howell just with nothing just like blows the other guy away and stuff. So Charlie Sheen's character was one of the more different and conflicting voices in this movie that I felt was needed. You know, like a lot of the other characters are kind of all telling different versions of the same story of boys becoming men and they're just doing it in a different way. Mm. And Charlie Sheen does have the same, obviously like the same kind of situation, boy becoming a man, but he is the one and only only person in the group that does have this kind of voice of reason. So I really dug that they had a character like that. And then it was, of all things, it was Charlie Sheen. I know it, it is funny. <laughs> Charlie Sheen, the voice of reason, but right. <laughs> I mean like, but if you didn't have it, there is no one in this movie other than the villain. Then that is sort of like a reasonable person. Um, right. Then it's just gas. Then it's just all gas pedal. Um, go fucking kill everyone who gives a shit. You need right. someone to sort of like, especially like, like when they catch the, you know, they capture the one Russian who literally looks like he's their age, probably 19 mm-hmm. or 20. Um, you know, like Charlie Sheen kind of looking at him like, like, yeah, like this is like, it's just a kid. Like we, wh- who are we now? And, right. you know, you need that. Otherwise it is just, then it really is a full fledged sort of right wing power fantasy at that point yeah. without the voice it's, of reason. It is a propaganda film in its ex- and it, it's a best degree. You know, that is the like defining version of propaganda film without this human element into it. And, and it just makes me wonder, because obviously the, the script I'm assuming went through many, many drafts, mm-hmm. but it does kind of make me wonder like if at some point in time, somebody actually noticed that and it's like, yeah, dude, Hey, maybe you do want to add like a, a humanist element to this movie because I feel like just the the few lines that he had about it were very, very powerful. And, you know, while we're making this statement about the country in this kind of situation, it provides really, really good commentary on the fine print of battle, I guess, that a lot of people like don't consider. You know, there are mostly like when it comes to war stuff, it's just like load up our guys and have them go kill their guys. But and completely like ignoring the humanist side of it that like, yes, these are people too. like, hey, this dude here is like a young ass kid and stuff. So mm-hmm. th- this kind of movie really, really needed Charlie Sheen. I mean, it might be the only character in the movie that's like needed, you know, oh, yeah. In, yeah. in terms of not making it sound like a, a right wing pornographic fantasy. Yeah, ex- no, you're 100 percent right. They could have like I'm glad they gave the, the villain, the main villain, like a little bit of um, doubt and everything. But like you could have, mm-hmm. didn't have to, and 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 the Charlie Sheen character would still fill that role. So like they didn't have to necessarily. I think it was a good thing they did. But um, you're you're 100 right. Um, I'm I'm gonna I'm just gonna go with Patrick Swayze here, and it is sort of, it is sort of like boy, you can see exactly why he was so, exactly why he became such a big star in the 80s. The charisma, 
obviously the looks, he's such a very good looking guy, was a very good looking guy, but like he definitely has that like that swagger, that it factor. Like the the way he is simultaneously sort of dangerous and um, you know, cunning and their leader, but also in a, in his very in his own way in this movie, very protective. Very much like to use that word term again, very avuncular. He's mm-hmm. very much like uh, you know, this is his sort of family now that he has to take care of. And he's very much making sure that, you know, that they're combat ready, but also that, like, he's in his own way checking in on them to make sure that they are okay. And obviously they're not okay. But still trying to, making the effort to, like, to be more than just this soldier. Be, making the effort to actually be a human, too. Oh, definitely, man. And, like, there's this whole expression, like, with, with screenwriting in movies where it's, like, showing and not telling. Patrick Swayze with the exception of maybe like two sentences where he just says like, Hey, I was a quarterback or something like that. Yeah. It is all showing. And this dude wears his emotions on that fucking beautiful mug. Like you would not believe, like you could really feel what this dude is going through with minimal dialogue. And like, there are just certain things like whether, you know, just him being the older guy, these, um, these scenes where he's just kind of off on his own looking out into nothing thinking and contemplating like as an audience member like we know what this guy is like thinking about you know it's Mm -hmm. just the situation like the the dire obstacles and all the crazy shit that these people have undergone like you could see those events like really like shaping this character and like you see it all like there's not really much telling he doesn't have a conversation where it's like man guys it just this war is really making me lose my mind. Like you don't have those conversations. You just see frustration and conflict on mm-hmm. his, in his body language and in his face. And it's, I got to say like for Patrick Swayze, um, which a lot of my Patrick Swayze movie viewing is, you know, we're basically looking at ghost like roadhouse, roadhouse. And a few, a few other ones here and there, dirty dancing. Uh, he does a really, really good job of like expressing this conflict with with not that much dialogue. And I, if somebody were to tell me that Patrick Swayze is like an A list actor off of this particular movie alone, this is one example. I would believe it. I would oh, yeah. be like, "Yep, I completely agree, one hundred percent." Yep, yep, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'll I'll jump in here with my with my scene stealer, um, Ron O'Neill's Commander Bella. Um, mostly because he's kind of given, you know, uh, in terms of our villains, given the most agency. But mm-hmm. I, I totally forgot, like, how much agency this character has. And the fact that we do get, like, a more complete arc, you know, starting off with, like, how determined he is to, um, you know, to make sure that everything's going okay. You know, to make sure that the, to make sure that uh, everything's in line for the Spetsnats. Um, but then, like, his own internal monologue. Uh, about what's going on his letters to his it sounds like his wife um you know about missing her and like like man i just i want to get back to cuba like i i don't want to be here I'm, I'm fucking freezing to death i hate this place i would give all this up right now to go home and be in cuba with you and mm-hmm. like again like did did this movie necessarily need this particular character no but i'm glad they gave it that we had this character because then when we get to that final standoff where um, Bella brings up the, um, you know, brings up his AK-47 to the Eckert brothers, and they just kind of look at each other, both with, you know, the Eckerts both, you know, presumably dying at that point, and, um, you know, the looks on their faces and the looks on his face, like, they're both just fucking tired of this. They, like, mm-hmm. like, I, I, like, why continue this when we don't have to? 
And right. without without Commander Bella getting those scenes, you know, with the Spetsnaz doubting, you know, doubting them and doubting what's going on and the internal monologue, that last scene really doesn't mean anything. But it means a lot when you know that he is like he's doubting this and he wants to go home. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like, you don't have to, I, I guess, like, you don't really have to go, like, full humanist on the villains and stuff. Like, you, 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 there has to be something about the villain that, I guess, makes maybe people feel for them a little bit. Right. But they gave this guy just enough, I feel, and, and especially because the commentary that they're making, you know, like, because like once again like a lot of people just think it's like hey our guys just get up and go shoot the other guys they never really consider like what the other guys might be going through and they're probably a pretty good chance like even in even in ukraine today that a good amount of soldiers like don't want to be there anymore especially over there they were lied to they thought it was going to be a training exercise or whatever so here you are six months later and um you know you're getting ready to go like winter's coming up the good old-fashioned eastern european winter is coming up Mm -hmm. you're going to be sick and tired and being over this stuff you know and while they um the the movie moved really quickly and they, they gave us just like I said, just enough to kind of get an idea where this character is going from. They, they didn't make us outright empathize or sympathize with him, but it was just enough of a human element to really sell that particular look exchange between the two of them, between the Decker brothers and, and Bella. And that's really like all we need. Like they, we know like what that body language says and stuff mm-hmm. like that because of the context that was provided earlier. And it really, really fucking works. And that guy like, stole a lot of scenes because he's really like the most well-rounded of all of the bad guys. Like the, the other Russian guy that kind of comes there, maybe like in the midway through the second act, I believe. And uh, the first thing we see, yeah, Sprelnikov gets, or I'm sorry, not Sprelnikov. Um, uh, Brachenko is like the next one that gets like the most sort of screen. The guy with kind of like the bug eyes. Yeah, yeah. 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 So like when he, when he comes into town and like gives that speech and stuff, like, we, we kind of don't need another guy to relate to, you know what I mean? Not to mention too, by that point in time in the movie, it's just a little bit late to start having the audience build yeah. a relationship with one of the villains. But like, it shows that there are many layers of emotion to the opposing sides of war. And you have these Russian guys who come in there, they're balls to the wall, they're all out. And then you have other, you know, sections of this, uh, of this enemy force that, are just they're just fucking over it you know like and i wouldn't blame any one of these people like no one wants to be in that situation even the most gung-ho of ukrainian hating russia russians out there put them in four months of nothing but snow and eating jack shit and not seeing your loved one you're gonna come to your senses about what you're actually doing there pretty quickly yep yep and we even get the line he talks about how he led the insurgency in cuba you know, he was, mm-hmm. a, he was an underground, you know, he was a, an underground fighter. He's a gorilla. And he's just like, yeah, I, I get it. Like we're, right. we invaded their home. Like I fucking get it. So this isn't, this isn't something foreign to me. Um, right. Yeah. So like it, it is, it's like they give someone just enough um, to, mm-hmm. to, to, to make that final scene pop and to make sure that we, we get sort of, which is Milius's kind of point here. And this is getting into my, the next question here that follows, but it doesn't really matter. Milius's point was like like the futility of war, even though it is definitely very, it I don't want to say pro-war, but like it's very close to having a pro-war message. But I think without the Commander Bella character, then it would be very flatly pro-war. 
Like, mm-hmm. there's just no well, doubt about it. So, um, yeah. so this character at least, uh, and, and also with with Charlie, uh, with with Matt Eckert, with Charlie Sheen's character, that helps tip the scales back to a point where it is very about the futility of work. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Like they made they had enough of a conscience of themselves to um, make sure that this wasn't an all out like you know war fantasy and stuff like that. And and it is really amazing how much when I say how much like how little, but how how just enough, which in, in the end is very very little dialogue and um, lines of, of spoken language that it's um that it really took just to like humanize these people and stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, sorry, sorry that went long. So, who's your uh, scene stealer? Oh, my scene stealer is C. Thomas Howell. Like, yeah, he's good. Um, I, I will say that in general, um, I figured there would be one of the characters that went like full on crazy loving this shit. Mm-hmm. I I didn't expect it to be him right away. Once we got to the deer, I'm like, okay, yeah, it's going to be this guy and stuff. But the thing that I thought made him so great of a show stealer is that. Once again, this is all like showing. There is no conversation where he just sits around. He's like, oh, you know, Jed, I really fucking love war. That deer really did a number to me. You are 100% right about that blood. There wasn't anything like that. And the other thing, too, about his showing is that he doesn't have that much camera time. So, like, you, through what is minimum, like, very, very small amounts of camera time. I don't have the the, the, the minutes on me right. and stuff like that. But like through minimal camera time and what is probably a very, very like small number of actual like story points, you see this guy's like full on evolution and stuff. And when we get to the end and like, you know, he's he's smoking, he so easily shoots the one Russian guy, he's the guy yelling Wolverines as he's shooting a fucking gun at a helicopter and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like it's just something that um, I thought was done very, very well. It was done very, very, very well with very, very minimal amounts of camera time. And there is just something about his kind of baby face amongst all the other kids. Like he seems to have even like the, the most innocent look out of them. It's just, there's just something about his overall look to mm-hmm. me where it, it just kind of makes sense that the most innocent, the most naive, the most unsuspecting character becomes the guy who is the most militant. I mean, can you imagine what the Godfather would have been like if Sonny ended up as the, the leader of the family at the end, it would have been, it wouldn't have been as good. So right. like, it's a similar thing here. And it just like the most unsuspecting person turns out to be the person you least expect them to be. And he did a really good job of it. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. And when they do give him a line, he gets some fucking dark shit to say. Like when, when mm-hmm. Powers Booth tells him like, Hey man, you gotta let that hate go. It's gonna burn you up inside. And he says, "I like yeah. it. It keeps me warm." Yeah, that's right. It. That's like, right. That's mm-hmm. that's some fucking cold shit right there. And it's just like, ooh, okay. Like, I, and like even power, like even when he says that, power boost is just like, oh shit. Like this kid's fucking gone. <laughs> like I, that's it. Yeah. Oh, you could totally tell. He doesn't even make eye contact with Powers Booth. He's just focused on whatever it is, his guns, his yeah. fire, cigarettes, whatever it is. Yes, exactly. Um, anything, now you said this is like, this might've been your first viewing. This is literally, I, I remember when the, the remake came out uh, 10 years ago. I think that's the last time I saw this movie. So this is almost a new viewing for me. So like, was there anything that just sort of like, that just popped up you're surprised by, let's say? Okay, so again, the grounding of the um, of the action stuff like that 
really just surprised me in general. I have to keep on reinforcing how absolutely good that was. Um, the other thing that had kind of popped out to me that I had forgotten about was the scene where the uh, three Russian uh, officers are, this would have been like one of the very, very first ambushes by the, um, the Wolverines. The three Russians are going up the mountain they see this sign um, in the yeah, national the, park about yeah, Teddy the, the Roosevelt and stuff. Yep. Exactly. And then like, there's clearly this plaque with a paragraph worth of writing that just summarizes an American version of history, but the Russian soldier so eloquently seems to talk about like what really happened there. And um, I guess I just kind of forgot as to how much, how many statements about war and America and things like that are made in this movie? Yeah, correct. Correct. I kind of, I, yeah, I, yeah, there's like, I, like I said, this is, this definitely leans very far right, but there every now and then you do get those, those flicks of those flicks of like, yeah, here's the real story. Yeah. Here's really what's mm -hmm. happening. Here's what war is really like. Like there it's in there. Um, it's just coded in a lot of, in a lot of red, white, and blue bullets, basically. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, so th good, that's that's an excellent point. And again, like I just um, one, I actually totally forgot that this is like an alternate universe until like the scroll came across, and I was like, oh right, like I, f I forgot this is like a made up 1980. Mm -hmm. Like I totally fucking forgot that part. Um, but like also the I, I totally forgot like the detail that this movie goes into with uh, you know with how like the how the Wolverines are planning their attacks and like the detail and care that goes into like when they pop up and like the action sequences are really well, like I, I, I guess I just, I kind of remember, remember this being a little bit more basic than it actually was, but like, mm -hmm. the, like, you know, even though it's grounded, there's still some like pretty, um, pretty well choreographed fight scenes and stuff that, that were just, oh, yeah. I was just like, Oh man, this is, I mean, I remember liking this movie. This movie's a lot better than I even fucking remember. Um, one thing that I did totally forget here. If any movie could have benefited from a beginning, it's this movie. Because this movie just <laughs> fucking starts. Like, yep. you are mm -hmm. four minutes into the movie and that teacher is getting shot. So, right. it, this movie just starts. Um, I would love if there was less middle and we got a little bit more character stuff at the beginning. So that when we yeah. do get the, you know, we get the, the Wolverines together, it's a little bit more meaningful, you know, when they're, when they're like hanging out in the woods. But it, it, it I mean whatever it's not that big of a deal basically but it is it is one that if you could if you could extract 20 minutes from the middle and put it at the beginning you can keep the movie the same length i think it's just under two hours you could keep the movie the same length just need i personally just needed a little bit more uh background info on some of the characters that's all yeah it's a very common thing amongst all these stories that really drop you right on into it you know there's there, there was this episode of or season of 24, I should say it was like season six, I think like there was really no beginning. They just kind of drop you right into the situation, no development. You just get mm -hmm. dropped into it. And like, yeah, it's cool when it works. Cause you're like immediately sucked into it. But when you look at things retrospectively, the answer is always like, I could have used a little bit more setup. There's never a point in time where like, yeah. when you see one of these projects where you're just like, man, this just worked. We were just so right on it from the beginning. Every single time, every single time I see something like this, I always say in retrospect, like, yeah, you know, we probably could have had a little bit of development there. For sure. For sure. All right. Uh, well, this last question doesn't really apply, so we can just skip that. Um, and then we will uh, take a quick break, and then we will get into The Running Man. All right, Chema, let's get into it. Let's talk 
The Running Man from 1987, starring one. Uh, did you did you watch this on Prime perchance, or do you have this? I actually own a DVD okay. copy of this. Yeah, I'm um, currently working on a project that is inspired by elements of The Running Man. So I have this on Blu-ray. I own the book. I'm reading oh, nice. the book. I've watched the Blu-ray a couple of times. The, it's interesting you asked me about the Amazon question because I have watched The Running Man um, three times in the last couple of years. The first two times that I watched it were on Prime, and the last time, which is the most recent time, was on the the Blu-ray that I bought. Okay, I I ask because whenever you know you um, they have like the X-ray or whatever, like you pause it and it shows you all the people in the scene, um, yeah, music and shit that's playing. Arnold is just credited as Arnold. Really? Yeah, I swear to God. At first, I thought I'm like, well, is it the length of the last name? But like, he's in a scene with. Um, uh, who's he in a scene with? Uh, he's in a scene with like Sven. Oh no, um, the the uh, he's in a scene with Sub Zero, and that's when I paused it. And it gives his full name, Professor Tonu Tanaka or whatever. Um, so like, it actually gives his full name, and it just doesn't give Arnold's full name. It's just Arnold. Interesting. I, I like I like I swear to God I've never seen that before. But if anyone was going to have a single name credit, Arnold. It's him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow, that is really interesting. Like. I um I have noticed certain like unusual things in the streaming world like um when you look at the episodes of Atlanta on Hulu there's not really summaries it's just like one or two sentences sometimes yeah. not even related to the episode at all and I knew that Amazon had that really great feature with the pausing and stuff but I'll be honest with you I I have not used it in so long that I, I actually didn't even know that they still did it. And I'm glad mm-hmm. that they do. Oh no. Yeah. It was just, it was a really strange thing. I just, I wanted to double check there with you. that like, I, and then I remember, I remember last episode you mentioned that you like have it. So I was just like, Oh wait, probably didn't see that. So like, that was just one of those things I just found immediately was just like, Oh, okay. I mean, I guess if anyone's going to get a single name credit. It's, it's, it's Prince and Arnold. So <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. Like I will say that the DVD um, that I watched, it was a, put me at a little bit of a disadvantage because we do do the cinema dissections and basically anytime we do do the movie stuff, I am a sucker for the time and like the running clock of the movie and what happens at what time and stuff. And the, the DVD did not do that for me. So when I went to write out this beat sheet that I have, it's without any of the timing stuff. And it just kind of drives me nuts because I'm just kind of like supposed to guess like when things probably happened in this movie, but I really want to know the specific minutes and seconds. Right, right. Exactly. Um, All right, Chumbo, let's, uh, let's give me your opening shot here. What, uh, what line are we going with? Okay. Here is sub zero. Now, Plane Zero! <laughs> love it. I love it. There's a couple of unusual one-liners in this yes, movie that, like, um, especially that close a lot of action uh, specific scenes. It's almost like there's kind of like a corny one-liner at um, at the end of a lot of these scenes. And even, like, even the, the rebels use it. There's this time when... Um, they're breaking in at the end and everything. And the kind of the rebels are taking hold and they even say to somebody, don't touch that dial. I was like, God, that's great. That might be the best use of that phrase in the history of of that phrase. (laughs) So there's a lot of them. There is something about that line that like I have loved my entire life. Um, And when I had 
gotten to hear it again at my initial rewatch of the running man, which was a couple of years ago, I still loved it. I was like, what a fucking line. Like it makes no sense, but makes all the sense in the world to me. There, this movie is so, this movie is so full of one liners that that some of them really fucking hit and mm-hmm. some of them don't. And the ones that don't land, you're just kind of like, eh, I'll wait for the next one. Like, right. there's, don't worry, they're going to recover. Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's like these, these lines aren't too corny. I'm sure they'll get a good one in yeah. there, and they do. They do. We oh, even yeah. get an we get an I'll be back in there. I'm like, holy shit! So, oh yeah, absolutely. You at this this was at this point in time where, um, if Arnold doesn't say I'll be back in a movie, it, it's it's just like, oh man, we we have to get it in. Like, right. <laughs> we, I mean, this is now this. You know, we're now just a couple years removed. Like this, we have to get this in. Otherwise, like, what are we even doing with him? Yeah, there's no point in having Arnold if you can't say this line in the movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just like in the 90s when we're like, we have to work in Hostel La Vista, Affirmative, all that stuff post-Terminator 2. Yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> all right, dude. So, yeah, we got The Running Man here, a 1987 release. I'm sorry I said September earlier in the episode it was actually released on November 13th of 1987 and just to give you a little bit of background here with some uh, interesting trivia surrounding the movie uh, it was written by this guy named Stephen E. D'Souza who yep. also wrote Die Hard and Judge Dredd the Stallone Judge Dredd mm-hmm. he's got a couple of the uh, screenwriting credits of you know familiar um, things that you and I would know from this particular era of cinema it is based on a book called The Running Man by Richard Bachman, which is a pseudonym for Stephen King, which yep. um, I'm sure a lot of people who are Stephen King fans know this. And I actually think it is kind of cool that Stephen King did create this alternate personality to write under. And I, I can't remember if Thinner is a Richard Bachman book too, but some of his, some of the Richard Bachman stuff has been turned into um, into movies and live action programming. Um, I thought it was very interesting that Stephen King was not a fan of this movie when it first came out because it's straight so far from the source material, yes, but that yeah. is kind of like a Stephen King thing. And mm-hmm. one, one interesting uh, thing to point out to people who, if you maybe do get the desire to read this book as I am reading right now, um, you will see online that a lot of sites label it as a novella. You maybe see some fights, not, some places not calling it an actual novel or a book make no uh, joke about it dude it is definitely a book there's 100 chapters in this book it is over 200 pages there is nothing novella-esque about this book at Mm. all very very thick one so um keep that in mind for all you people out there looking to maybe get uh, get yourself uh, a copy of the book. The movie itself was directed by Paul Michael Glazer, who following The Running Man has got two very interesting and the farthest thing from The Running Man credits. He directed The Air Up There, where Kevin Bacon goes to Africa oh, in yes. search of the, the next NBA prospect, which um, I did like that movie being a a fan of uh, basketball even to this day. And when I was younger, when I played, it was, you know, I definitely loved any movie about basketball. And he also directed the movie Kazam starring Shaquille O'Neal, where he plays a genie. So to go from the running man to Kazam, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like going from the road warrior to happy feet too. So occasionally it happens. Um, but yeah, what a just qu- quite an interesting um, little 
evolution of his uh, career and everything. Yeah, and even even in between, um, he has the Cutting Edge, which I'm I'm almost positive that's the ice skating movie with like Dee Dee Sweeney. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I, yep. I think so. Yep. Definitely. Yep. For sure. Yeah. So really interesting some of the filmographies that these directors get you know especially like the the ones that aren't like your tarantinos or Andrew, paul thomas anderson's or christopher nolan's who just burp in the studio gives them a blank check yeah. um some of these guys that actually have to work you know for a living and mm-hmm. be in the system they just have really eclectic um filmography sometimes which is very very interesting so um Casting-wise, we're looking at Arnold Schwarzenegger as the protagonist, Ben Richards. Um, We have uh, Maria Conchita Alonso as Amber Mm. Mendez, the the love interest of the the story, which I definitely have some thoughts to say about that. Um, Yafet Kato, who plays Lachlan. um, I only knew him from Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. He is the psychologist. Alien. That's right. Yes, that's yep. right. Yep, yep, that's right. Forgot all about that. Yep, Alien. Yeah, Yaku Koto's got a big career, like, mostly in, the, like, the 70s. Yeah, um, I got Big you. time actor. Like, I mean, he's, uh, like, a, he's got a great filmography, but, like, his, his, the bulk of his best work is, like, in the 70s. Gotcha, gotcha. And we're looking at uh, Jim Brown, the the, the running yep. back himself, uh, playing, um, what did he is Fireball, Fireball in the movie. It's fantastic. Uh, we got Jesse Ventura as Captain Freedom. We got Erland Van Litt as Dynamo, who is actually a classically trained opera singer. So the um, idea of Dynamo singing the opera in the movie was something that he was able to do, yep. which was actually pretty fucking cool in uh in my opinion uh we got professor toro tanaka sub-zero mick fleetwood plays mick the leader of the rebels uh gus raywish as budsaw which that was a fucking awesome um yeah addition to the cast of buzzsaw you almost needed the chainsaw guy for the 80s uh then we have marvin j mcintyre as weiss the other rebel that kind of joins them and uh, joins schwarzenegger in the game and then uh, just a couple of other ones really quick we have the great richard dawson host of the family feud Mm -hmm. um as damon killian and we even have one of the zappa kids in the movie dweezil zappa plays stevie as a small role in the movie who i believe is one of the guys working at the network i think Uh, so he is uh he's mick fleetwood's right hand man it's free with right-handed man. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Gotcha. Gotcha. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. So, yeah, so casting-wise, we have a um, a very interesting cast. It is nowhere near as eclectic as um, what we saw in the Red Dawn cast, but still a very, very solid cast all in all. Uh, Richard Dawson, I love that they got him on this show because when I was growing up, he was the host of The Family Feud to me. I... I don't think I, I can't even remember if there was anybody before him, but um, Richard Dawson to me was the host of the family feud. And then Louis Anderson and the guy who played Peterman from Seinfeld kind of came like a little bit later. So I, right. I thought it was great that they got an actual game show host and one that I knew to be the game show host um, of the running man in the movie. So I really dug that um, the movie had a budget of $27 million and made 38.1. So definitely a success, maybe not a smash blockbuster, but it was a success. Um, so we also have a very interesting factoid about how 
this movie was originally supposed to be a summer release in 1987, but it was pushed back by four months as to not compete with Arnold's other big movie that came out that summer, Predator, which came out in June. <laughs> so it was 1987, and pretty much a lot of summers in the 80s were the summer of Arnold, and that, that tailed yep. off into the 90s too. So, yep. uh, yeah, so he was definitely the big summer blockbuster star for for a very, very, very long time. Um, and two other quick things to mention, um, which I thought was interesting, that the footage of attacking helicopters that we see in the beginning is actually footage from the 1976 King Kong that they spliced into the Running Man. Ah. And uh, when Arnold ran for governor, according to IMDb, his campaign bus was called the Running Man. So I, <laughs> it, it just, like... Like I, when Schwarzenegger was governor, um, like we're looking, you know, at like the two thousands and stuff like that. Uh, this was at a point in time where like I did not live in the state of California and just kind of following the fact that Arnold Schwarzenegger was going to be the governor of California via news headlines and everything like that from Ohio. I sort of expected there would at least be something like this in his campaign. I, I like people were calling him the governor, but I don't remember seeing the governor on any official like billboards or any kind of merchandise that I, I remember. I just don't remember seeing it. But the fact that he called his bus, the running man, it, this would be like the one thing I think I wanted Arnold to do out of his campaign. <laughs> oh, absolutely. There's, I'm sort of I'm, I am sort of glad though that like there wasn't a huge lean into all of his one-liners and personas. You know what I mean? Like it, like he he did just enough. Like you know he'd have a campaign speech yeah. where he'd he'd drop in a one-liner or something, or you right. know, he would he would give like a you know a classic, not necessarily even a movie line, just like a classic line like. I'm going to pump up healthcare and I'm going yeah. to terminate these democratic girly men or, you know, something like that in a campaign yeah. speech. Like right. just enough. Whereas he could have really gone, it, it could have been like fucking just a script basically he was reading from it, Like he, yeah. he could have gone that direction. Oh, he definitely could have. And like, I, I think at that point in time, like I don't believe idiocracy would have came out, but we would have been looking at president Comanche at that point in time oh, yes. where he should yep. going up there reading lines from his movies and the current state of American politics. I don't think we're that far away from something like that actually happening. <laughs> <Nope>. so, <laughs> so yeah. So like I, um, that was just another cool factoid. I, I thought that that just seemed appropriate that he oh, yeah. do something involving the running man. So mm-hmm. in terms of a couple of things that I was specifically looking for, for this um, exemplary 1980s movie, um, one thing that I wanted was, I did kind of want to watch a movie that I had somewhat of a nostalgic connection to. I I, I didn't want to go into something that I I hadn't seen before. I I wanted with the specific assignment to do something that I had seen. So I do have like, obviously like, you know, just growing up, um, it's a growing up in the child of the eighties into the early nineties. This was a movie that I had seen a bunch of times when I was younger. I remember um, me and Mike Mormile as kids, I think this was a, a video store from Network Video or Summit Video rental that we watched like just on like a sleepover night one night. Um, I have since then, I mean, I've seen it on, on television, edited for content on like the TBS TNT. I have seen it like full length on whatever HBO Showtime, whichever carried it. I've seen it on videotape since, since when I was younger. So, I mean, I've, I've watched this movie a, a good amount of times and um, I did want to have just somewhat of a nostalgic um, movie for me for this particular discussion. Um, I also wanted to do 
a movie with some recognizable movie star that either rose to prominence in the mm-hmm. 1980s or did their best work in the 1980s. So I just think in general, it would give us a, a focal point of discussion to, you know, have at least one ultra familiar face and everything like that. You know, the same way with Red Dawn, everybody went on. These are extremely familiar faces. Right. So right. I think it was just kind of something for us to pull back on. It's just, so we can make a comparison between their work in the eighties and maybe any, um, current like work that they have done just i thought it'd be like a good thing to ensure a healthy discussion and then the last thing that i wanted was some type of high concept of shit production with a science fiction or dystopian type premise which seemed to excel in the 1980s oh yes and this one fully delivered on that so i mean this basically is a movie that checked all of my boxes for this discussion and there is way more to this movie than I remember as a kid. So we're beginning into yeah. some of this as the discussion goes on. But this, um, the movie when I was a kid was basically just a game show. People are trying to kill Arnold. But as an adult, there is definitely a lot more um, to this movie. And um, I am very excited to get into some of those, um, some of those things as our discussion goes on, for Absol- sure. Absolutely. It's, it's very interesting. I wonder if... Um, dystopias were very big in the 1980s in movies. I is this like a is this like a direct sort of result of um, we talk about how the 80s you know you know a lot of people you know people older people like people are our parents age or whatever they'll talk about how like they you know their salaries were worth the most in the 1980s they had the mm-hmm. most their most disposable income in the 1980s were we creating fictional dystopias because things were that good. That could be the case. Like this, honestly, like, you know, we talk about many times about how horror movies and movies itself maybe um, exemplify uh, societal fears. This may have been one of those things where everybody, everything was so good in the 80s and 80s excess that this movie was maybe making a commentary on where that whole thing could go. And yeah. that, if you were to tell that to me, that that makes all the sense in the world that, you know, here we are in the, the utopia of 1980s America and this dystopia could be something that is a um, is an answer to maybe like a, a societal fear of everything going to shit, which as we've learned from history and as we could definitely tell from um, right wing stuff is that like, you know, rich people definitely seem to fear things going wrong and poor people having a little bit of an uprising. Yep. So, the, the, you know, it, it fits in line with some of the. Um, some of the traits of the, the, the decade and also, um, you know, people who lived in, in that decade and stuff like that, for yep. sure, dude, that definitely. And uh, so, ironically enough, we would, we would have actually had uh, black Monday the year this movie came out around this you, time. This movie came out, I think that's right. Actually, you're totally fucking right. Stocks on that. fucking yeah. crash. I mean, not obviously not like a, not like a stock market crash, like in the twenties, but uh, like, I mean, like a crash. Yeah, exactly. This was been like the the, the wake up call of '80s excess was that uh, that Black Monday and everything. And mm-hmm. go figure, Jordan Belfort's first day on the stock exchange that happened. Yep. So, so at least according to the movie, anyway. Right. But um, so okay. So any parts of the movie that got close to predicting future events, my fucking god, yeah. There was definitely <laughs> some um, predictions here going on. Uh, just to give you three of the, the basic ones, we have the 24-hour entertainment cycle on television. Yep. Not just news, but the entertainment cycle. And as we learned from um, our Videodrome episode and some of the um, some of the influences and things that kind of 
were inspiration for that. And David Cronenberg was talking about how, um, you know, back then channels would sign off and you'd have like a mm-hmm. test pattern on screen that ran for four hours or whatever the hell it was. Right. Um, now it is definitely not like that. The, the entertainment cycle, the news cycle is 24 seven, 365. And this game was a 24 seven, 365 running game, which, um, easily could be viewed as something that was predictive of the future and stuff for sure. Um, This one has been going on forever, but with television, um, the movie did a good job of predicting future events. And that is the manipulation of media and especially the manipulation of footage. We couldn't talk about how many times on Fox news there are, something of the sorts, whether they're taking a a specific quote of like one sentence that was in the middle of 50 sentences and totally blaring the shit out of this one sentence, not providing any context for things. Or there even is this one example that this really didn't stick around all that long, but like early on in the Trump presidency, maybe even about midway through, there was this video that it was definitely altered to make it look like Jim Acosta pushed somebody or something. It was this thing that yes. Fox News was blowing up for like yep. for like a week or two before they went on to the next thing. And um, so, like outright manipulation of footage um, to a lack of context footage. It's all manipulation, and this movie definitely touches on that. Whether it's the manipulation of footage of Arnold's crime that he committed crime, of course, in um, quotation marks, or even the edited footage of the uh, surviving running men that were supposedly on a tropical Island getting drunk and banging hotties. But in all reality, their bodies were in a, uh, in a closet in the basement somewhere and stuff, you know? So the manipulation of media footage is a, is a, is a prominent theme here in the movie. That's also kind of like a prominent theme in the world that we live in today. And um, the last thing that I will mention in terms of the future events is this idea of reality competition shows. Um, Now, I could be wrong on this, but I I know that there were game shows and all this stuff like that throughout the entire course of history. But when reality TV first came out, at least to to my memory, it was things more like the real world. We're like, hey, let's get people in a house and let's get them living together, blah, 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 and see what happens. And then they had like the real world road rules challenge. And then it's like from there, everything just kind of blew up in terms of like reality based competition shows. Yeah. We're not, we're not talking about what we think of what really marks, what really is the hallmark of reality TV now where like everything's a competition that does not start until like the mid nineties, basically. Um, I I think that, I think that was even, even pre real world road rules, um, you know, versus each other just Mm -hmm. road rules remember they had to do like stuff yeah they actually had that's right wasn't a flat-out competition but they had tasks and things that they had to do yeah there was like little kind of adventures where at the end you got more gas money or something whatever it was yeah exactly so when we're talking like the full-fledged reality competition shows these came a little bit later and like i personally believe that this movie may have had a hand in predicting these type of reality shows is one of the more famous ones is called the amazing race. Yep. So like people running around the world basically or yep. flying or d- doing whatever they need to do. So this idea of, um, of everything being television and television just being like, so in your face and all this stuff is a prominent theme throughout the, the, the movie and is definitely something that we still deal with in the real world right. today. And it, and it does, it, and it just real quickly, and it just does make sense for the 1980s, especially like, 
the 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 you know the, the decade of wanting more 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 like well mm-hmm. the next logical progression of that is getting more television constantly right that's exactly right like that just keep on giving us more keep giving us more opportunities to watch more channels c- cable tv and stuff like that rise in the 80s so like yeah it just completely fits the um the overall personality of the, of the decade as mm-hmm. a whole this is like a very 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 1980s movie for sure um some things that <clears throat> never really came to fruition like this one was a little bit harder than the, the previous question. Um, yeah. I would I would say in general, while there are reality competition shows, we haven't really seen anything where like I mean, American Gladiators might be like the closest thing, but there's there's really nothing like the Running Man in terms of the overall like yeah, obviously we're not going to put our people out there to have them killed, but I, I kind of expected some answer to this in the real world, like where we're going so far and so crazy with reality TV as it is. I just am surprised that like combat centric reality TV in a game like this has not made its way to television. And now I know that like America gladiators is obviously one thing, but it's different. It's like, you know, the, the American gladiators, it's like, you know, people that are like, I guess like able to contend going against people in different obstacles, you know, with different things. Like there's the jousting, all this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. There's not a show that's like the running man where it just says like, Hey, if you beat the shit out of these five people and get to the end, you win. There's really nothing like that. Probably for the better, by the way. Yeah. Quite frankly. Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely for the better. But I, at the same time, am kind of surprised that we haven't had something like this. It almost just seems like everything that, like, middle America would want. Like, give somebody the opportunity to win money and say he's got to beat the shit out of people in a certain amount of time to do it. It just just seems like something that we would have latched on to by then. So I was, in a good way, surprised that we haven't gotten to, um, to that extreme of it all. But I was trying to look for other things and like in in some way, shape or form, a lot of things that the movie addresses has sort of happened in its own way. Like even like the ideas of like these, these rebels and stuff, while it may not be armed assailants and everything like that, like they have in the movie, like an actual like army with guns, but we do have hackers and things like that. We have anonymous who are Mm -hmm. jamming signals and fucking up comm links like all the time. So while the and we, I'm not gonna lie, we do have a shit ton of backyard militaries throughout the country, but we didn't really have anything that like like the, what I'm saying here is that a, a lot of the, the movie addressed a lot of these things that there wasn't anything that I can honestly say has not actually happened yet. It seems like yeah. everything has happened, but in some sort of way, shape, or form. You know? Yeah, there's you're you're absolutely right. I mean, we have hacktivists and and, and, and hacktivist collectives, and obviously we have anonymous. Um, we have more boots on the ground organizations, loose organizations that are generally more right wing, you know, like Boogaloo Boys, Three Percenters. But, you know, there is Antifa, there is BLM. I'm not, not equating them to on the same level, but mm-hmm. those are like actual like boots on the ground organizations. I mean, like they exist, certainly yeah. not with the same militaristic flair that we have here in The Running Man uh, with, the, with the underground rebels. Um, but one thing that is sort of like interesting, like since you mentioned it, like how, you know, like it didn't, you know, things came to fruition in their own way. 
this company ICS, this entertainment company in the movie, um, you know, it's it's clear it's clear that they are in the halls of power everywhere. They're in the DOJ, the presidency. Mm-hmm. The president has an agent that assumingly assumingly works with or for ICS. And right. while that hasn't explicitly happened, and hopefully never will happen, obviously, but um, you want to tell me that Disney doesn't have its fucking hands in real estate and laws in places like Florida and California? Nope, they do. Oh, they do. Yeah, they, they, have their, they have their hands in all sorts of policy and um, and things that don't seem as overtly like you know like they're not Disney isn't calling up the DOJ to like you know fucking jail I don't know <laughs> one of the DC characters or something, but right. Um, but like they want something to get done in Florida. They want to get something done in California that benefits them. They'll get it done. Oh, that's exactly right. And Ron DeSantis is currently going to war with Disney. We'll see who wins that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like wait till just wait Orlando residents when your property taxes go up 1800 bucks and stuff. Just wait because it'll happen. That's for sure. Disney doesn't lose. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Disney does not lose. (laughs) So aside, putting aside any remakes, intended remakes, which we'll, get to as the conversation progresses what this kind of reminds me of like i I definitely see elements of like mortal Kombat in there like there it's like it's not a tournament but it it is a game it's a game with like bosses or in this case slackers like you in theory the stalkers stalker stalkers that's right stalkers yeah um not slacker with that fucking richard linklater movie which for some reason was on my mind they just like hang out yeah that's right like well whatever we'll get around to killing them eventually I'm not going to lie, like having a random person down there might actually be kind of funny. <laughs> Just a random like dude watching TV in the TV show in this yeah. course. But so like the um, with the stalkers, this idea of escalating bosses, you know, like it, it's entirely your opinion as to which one you believe is to be the most powerful one. I personally believe Dynamo might be the one that could fuck up the most amount of shit just out of all the stalkers, even though he came earlier. But there is definitely a progressive level where in theory you are getting to the more difficult bosses as the movie progresses. Um, So there's a little bit of a Mortal Kombat element in there. Um, American Idol for fucking sure. Like (laughs) just with the audience, (laughs) In a, in a modern day setting, but I'm not going to get to that, but like, yeah, there's definitely some American Idol-esque elements in terms of audience participation and all that stuff, for sure. Um, and even not to mention just like the overall merchandising of the Running Man TV show when Richard Dawkins is handing the contestants like the, the board games and the shirts and all the yep. memorabilia and stuff like, yeah, there's definitely some American idolizing uh, going on there. And the last thing that I have is um, I have Demolition Man. I Number one, I just watched Demolition man like two weeks ago for like god only knows how many times it's on hulu (laughs) but um there is something about like it's not the above ground part of devolution man because that's obviously the the peaceful but fucked up part but there's just something about the underground elements of demolition man whether it's the industrial kind of setting that's kind of a parallelism between both of the movies or you know just the, the the grunginess of the of what happens below the surface and not to mention there's just some like dystopian element in law, even though what is above ground of demolition man is nice and peaceful. It's rather dystopic and dystopic in the way that the, the areas run, you know, you can't swear there's no sex. It's very, very dystopic, but in a different kind of way, it's almost kind of like reversing what we think of 
dystopia yeah, um, in Demolition yeah. Man. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. But you do get it in um, you do get it in the Running Man. Art art is banned. Um, mm-hmm. Certain music is banned. Clothing from for, you know foreign clothing is banned. Um, right. Like it, it really doesn't take a lot to trip sort of like I guess like the censors. Um, so I mean it's there um, in this in their in this version. You know if you if you are on the side of ICS, it is sort of. You know, like we when we meet Amber Mendez, like it seems like she has a pretty good life. I mean, she was just given an apartment, mm-hmm. like for you yeah, know what I mean? that, like that's uh, right. You work for you work for ICS. You work for the state. Here you go, free free housing. Um, yeah. So yeah, so it, it's there. It, you're definitely right. It's 100 percent there. Oh yeah, for sure. So like, I um I felt that those three movies and everything like that really just kind of, at least in my own mind, um, are. are fair comparisons and stuff like I that. I agree. You know, I'll, so. I'll add to it. I'll add to it real quickly. This very, this very much feels like now having seen it for several seasons. Now this feels like almost like uh, a prototype version of the boys. Um, oh God. Yeah. The Holy halls, shit. you know, the halls of power controlling <laughs> mm-hmm. our entertainment and really manipulating exactly how those entertainers work, what they see, how they're pre- like, you know, the, the control. That is yeah. that is present in in the entertainment industry and in the halls of power and how those kind of collide in a very bad way more often than not. Oh, definitely, dude. Yeah, you make a great comparison there with the boys and stuff, and like all of those superheroes are just completely manufactured for like the, the public image mm-hmm. and stuff. And like, I'm glad you brought that up because um, the imagery of Jesse Ventura dancing in the 1980s exercise video class that we see about. Um, a little bit into the first act, probably like maybe towards the end of the first act, there's that video of Jesse Ventura. Very, very similar to the footage of soldier boy singing Blondie's rapture in a 1970s, eighties kind of like the grind on MTV kind of show and stuff like that. Like the um, there's this, I guess sort of like haunting juxtaposition of these two very powerful people, whether it's Captain Freedom or Soldier Boy, in these rather docile, less violent situations of an exercise class and the 1980s version of the grind. There's something about it that like sticks in your mind. And just when Soldier Boy does that rap part of the song that Debbie Harry does. It was like, eat the cars and go to the bars and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like all that kind of, you Mm -hmm. know, exactly what I mean. Like there is just something about that, that I feel like really just kind of sticks with you. And it's actually one of the better juxtapositions of imagery that the boys has done. Mm -hmm. There's still just something about it that I find insanely haunting and just watching uh, soldier boy do that, do that rap and stuff. So um, yeah. So that I thought was a very, very good comparison there just basically just ignited my mind just started running and everything like that which uh i'm going to run it right on into the next section which is going to battle let's go to battle baby let's do it up so for you what pleased you the most about these action sequences i appreciated the absurdity of the action sequences but like they hit that pitch perfect point of absurdity where like yeah, like this is a this is a TV, this is a glitzy TV show where people are killed on in front of people and people win prizes for picking the right stalker to kill people. So like mm-hmm. it is already su- like very surreal in the in the way that a lot of you know once you know once you realize that this is a Stephen King um, adaptation, obviously not a very faithful one, 
but there still is this like nugget of like when when Stephen King does like political commentary books and things like that, like the Dead Zone and stuff. There's this very surreal element to the world, like mm-hmm. because the characters that he's you know Stephen King characters are usually pretty bizarre. Um, yeah. <laughs> so to sort of match that bizarreness, the 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 rest of the world has to be kind of hyper real or surreal, and this is very surreal. And but it but the absurdity of the absurdity of an ice skating Japanese man named Sub Zero that cuts people apart with a fucking goalie stick filled with razor blades. It like it's absurd, but it makes sense for a TV show, does it not? Oh, it totally does. And that was like one of the things that I had is that like yeah, like it's crazy, but it's not unbelievable. It's not too crazy for the situation that we're yeah. in. So all of these dudes, whether you're right, ice skating samurai guy to opera singing version of Electro, it's all very, very believable for the the situation that that it's in. And like these types of characters in any other movie, I feel, or even like without a movie without the dystopian element would really seem out of place. Oh, so totally. you have you have like this almost like perfect like combination of flavors that are working together in this bowl that provide and just an awesome taste of 1980s action harmony and stuff. And like you get into some of like the, the way that these um like some of these fight scenes and everything like that break down. It's like a guy gets strangled with razor wire, but it fucking works. And it's almost like I wouldn't have him go out any other way. Mm-hmm. Oh no, absolutely. Like, I think I think if this movie, um, if, if if instead of a game show, if this was if this was more set up like just a reality TV situation, we're just going to follow him around while this happens. But by, yeah. I think because it's under the guise of a game show, then we need game show elements. We have a game mm-hmm. show host. We have the sort of the idea that like, okay, here's the challenge. Um, you know, you got to get past this guy on ice skates. Here's the challenge. You got to get past the guy with the with the chainsaws. Like, right. it, there's a game element to each boss um, that, right. that sort of fits in. Whereas I think if, if or if this was just sort of, um, well, I want to save this stuff. I want to save this stuff for later. But it, they just figured out the right, right way to make everything gamified, absurd, but fit with a pattern of what they're going for. It just, it works so fucking perfectly. Exactly. Like, it's almost like anything, any one of these elements, whether it could be the stalkers, the game show itself, like you take anything, maybe one direction, a little bit in one direction or a little bit in another direction. It's either going to be not enough or too much, but they just have everything hitting like absolutely perfectly. Like the yep. costuming, everything. It just it just works. So and and, and just real quick, I, I just want to add another thing real quick, because we went with this very over the top sort of feel to it. The fact that everyone gets like a pro wrestling entrance mm-hmm. works really fucking well. Like, yeah, they get a chance to preen and like, you know, Dynamo gets a chance to sing. Buzzsaw is, you know, revving up the chainsaws and shit. Um, Fireball mm-hmm. with the with the, I want to we're going to talk about this later. But Jim Brown's sort of entrance into the fucking arena is awesome. Um, yeah, it's it is it is it's like we're watching we're watching the way that like if you and I went to a Monday night WWE Raw Monday night show, that entrance like of their big Titan Tron with their music and everything, the graphics that's exactly mm-hmm. what was happening. We got that oh. in a fucking movie. It was fucking fantastic. Do you know if, um, cause obviously professional wrestling was, was around in the 1980s. Was the, was the entrance of the characters 
similar back in the 80s than it was modern day or like it, did it they started, still do the big entrance it started to get much bigger in the 80s um that's, okay that's when it really started to blow up a little bit especially like the later basically around this time they would have began ma- they would have began making the entrances bigger and bigger yeah okay gotcha i'm like i can remember 80s wrestling personalities but since i did not have cable till well into the 90s I had I wasn't really able to like watch wrestling like I had the toys but as far as actually viewing it I just wasn't able to actually view right. re- wrestling back then and stuff like that right. for it, sure. It, what 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 you really get to is like the what is it called the the attitude era with like the rock and yeah. like <clears throat> that's when like we really sort of perfect the the entrances and you know they're, they're obviously they're a little bit different even now but the exact same template from about like 25 years ago or so is like that's when it was born. Gotcha. Yeah. So it could easily be one of these things where, hell, Vince McMahon as a younger guy was like, what do we need? What do these guys yeah. need? And he watches the running man and all of a sudden uh, the if, rest is history. If you, <laughs> ever, if you ever happen to see like old, like mid South wrestling from like the seventies or something, it was basically like, and now here comes, you know, here come like the Tucker twins, you know, for like a, you know, a tag team match. And then yeah. they're just like playing like Freebird in the background like while they come in. That's right. It. I gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, I gotcha for sure. So did you have a favorite of all the action sequences? Oh, man. Um, there's a lot to choose from. There's, there's a lot to a choose lot from. A lot of good ones. <laughs> and honestly, like, I, I think um, I think my favorite has to be, I think my favorite has to be that that fight with Buzzsaw. Um, yeah. yeah. Obviously not the, not the showiest of the action sequences, but like the fact that, the fact that we, again, something that Every fucking movie studio needs to take note of the fact that Arnold can be damaged um, mm-hmm. and be hurt and thrown around by someone who is actually that dude is fucking huge. A lot of all the dudes in this fucking movie were fucking huge. Um, right. <laughs> but like the fact that Arnold's allowed to be hurt, allowed to be caught, beat up, thrown around. And the fact that like Buzzsaw, like when they fight, when they get to like the hand to hand combat, the fact that like he that Buzzsaw is allowed to beat the shit out of him, essentially um, mm-hmm. like th- that would just never happen now. And it does sort of like raise the stakes. I mean, you know, Arnold's going to fucking win in the end. He's Arnold, but right. Like the fact that like there are, there are the fact that like that just sends a signal that like all of these people that are coming after him are at least physically his equals. So yeah, there's not going to be, in fact, they're his equals and they all have weapons and vehicles and they know the course and they know where these, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. Killian and the TV crew can tell them where they're going. So like, the, not only not only is are they his equals, he's at a massive disadvantage, which just is something we don't see anymore. Right, exactly. Yes, I, my, my favorite fight scene was the the buzzsaw one too. So I'm not going to like add on too much to what you have to say, but you make a really good point about his fall his fallibility of um of of a character and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And you're right in, in a modern day setting that more than likely would not happen. You know, you would definitely have a uh, much more toned down action. Uh, I don't even necessarily know if the rock would um, like, if the rock would be in like a similar kind of production. I, I almost feel that it would somehow so. be tailored to him in his own way and stuff like that. You know, yeah. we'll, uh, we'll save the reboots and modern discussion for a, a little Correct. bit later for Correct. fucking sure. So yeah. what, about, what about um, your favorite? Was it just the? Oh yeah, scene? yeah. I, I okay. mine was mine was easily Buzzsaw too. They're like I loved a lot of these ones. Um, and I'll actually to um bring into something into the discussion now that I probably could have had for later, but I think it's more appropriate now okay. is um one of the things that I really like about this, like on top of just like the action and everything, there was a really great conscious decision I feel that was made in terms of the ordering of the the stalkers, and I love that 
Jesse Ventura was just like, no, you know, I'm not going to go in there and fight him and stuff like that. And by the time we get to the point where Jesse Ventura would have entered the equation, I feel like we've seen already what we needed to see in terms of like the stalker fights. We would have had four stalkers by the time Captain Freedom is even called into play. So all of those fight scenes are so fucking awesome. I don't even really know what you were going to have Jesse Ventura do that the other guys didn't do so Correct. much fucking better, you Correct. know? Yeah, we, we so, instead we get that scene, instead we get the faked video with him, right. which works much yeah. better, much better. Right, exactly. It totally fucking does. So I did love all of the fight scenes, and for this little element of the discussion, I got to say I love that conscious decision to not have him physically go enter into the game. I thought that was a really, really great decision. So um, oh, how, how do you think these action sequences sequences would be changed in a modern version. And I know we're going to have some similar answers to, to Red Dawn there and stuff yeah, for probably. sure. I <laughs> mean, there, there have been a ton more CGI in this one. Um, yeah. Simply because of like, you know, thinking about like um, Dynamo's effects, you know, there's, there's, there's obviously some just like explosive effects that they use. Um, but like they did the old thing where they just essentially paint on the cells to get like the electricity. Um, so like there would have been a ton more, there have been a ton more um, CGI in this. And I think you mentioned it just before, just a minute ago. I think they would have toned down the action and sort of the 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 very pro wrestling kind of personas that the stalkers have. Mm-hmm. And which I think would be a huge mistake because then this goes from feeling like a very surreal sort of dystopian vision to a horror movie like The Purge. If you do that. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Like, I think you really fundamentally change the the tone and feel of this movie into a very kind of gruesome horror movie. Oh, that's exactly what would have happened for sure. Like they would have taken out some of the, the color and fun of it and replaced it with, with a definitely like a horror element of it for sure. And like those big entrances and stuff that is easily something that I could see them removing to reinforce more of a horror element than this like kind of cool entertaining science fiction dystopia and stuff yeah. like that it would definitely feel more purge like for fucking sure and i mean you're hitting on like definitely the basis more cgi more all this kind of stuff you know definitely but like that is a big that is like a big thing i actually didn't even think about that one because those big giant interests the, the flash like the lights and all that stuff it's really like it's an element that makes this movie what it is and what makes this movie so great but if you take away that kind of stuff in favor of something like horror i think you're actually going to miss the point of like this the story in general mm-hmm. and like with with the way that basically everything is going horror now it's like the only genre that's that in science fiction like the only genre that's like really seemed to evolve in the last little bit of time that that is definitely something that i could see a lesser film oriented mind than the the guy who's supposed to helm this which we'll talk about later on too but i could see something like a um a lesser filmmaker might make that decision yeah yeah uh, yes a hundred percent um, can I say though that one thing that that would be changed, it, it, that I think actually would be changed for the better, mm-hmm. um, Fireball would be way more badass. Like, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I I I really love I really love that you know one I love that they use Jim Brown for this. It, it, like, it's just man, that guy's like in this movie that guy's like fifty something, and he looks like he could absolutely beat the fucking piss out of me, um, <laughs> right? Out of anyone basically. But like, I think you know the modern adaptation of this his jetpack and shit, the fact that he flies and sets things on fire, 
that would be kind of awesome to see mm-hmm. what the modern version of Fireball would be like. I actually think that's since you since you mentioned the Rock, not that he would ever do that. That feels like the kind of role that would be fucking awesome to have the Rock do for like ten minutes in an action movie. Oh, dude, I can see him right now, bald head and sunglasses, wearing some cool ass fucking device. Yeah, you got that right, dude. And it's it's actually funny you mentioned Fireball because I specifically wrote in my notes, Fireball would have like the world's biggest flame fl- flamethrower that yep. shot the world's largest flames. That's exactly yep. what yeah, I wrote down. Well, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and like, and it's like that. You know, I feel that um, all of these guys would have way more accelerated versions of like their capabilities and stuff like that. Like Dynamo's electricity would be like Electro and Spider-Man, but times 10, you know what I'm saying? Like he may even be able to plug himself into something and get more power for all the hell I know. And Buzzsaw would have a custom made chainsaw. That's like a general grievous six chainsaws in one kind of thing, you know? So like all of these weapons would be, be amped up to death for the sake of spectacle. That is for fucking sure. Yeah. And I think, I think in some cases it could kind of work like in the case of fireball, but I think mm-hmm. the more, the more, um, you know, just, just may, basically uh, they, they have a line in there about, um, about like what buzzsaws chainsaws are made out of like this hyper strong, sharp, um, composite steel or titanium or whatever. Like that's enough for me to go like, Oh yeah, this dude can cut the shit out of anything. And mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't need him to have like five of them attached to one, mm-hmm. you know, to some weird device or something like just make the chainsaws super sharp, make him a big, strong guy. Perfect. That's enough. Yeah, definitely, dude. Definitely. Let me ask you another quick um, question here. Yeah. Do you believe in a modern version, they would have a gun happy character, like a, like gun guy, for example, Ooh. like maybe, maybe buzzsaws, the chainsaw guy has been replaced with gun guy. That's a, you know, that's a good question. I think, yeah, like I think if they really were looking to make, yeah, you know, I think they would, because um, I think there's obviously a very, um, there's obviously a very political message in this movie, and I think that that's that's something that would survive in a modern adaptation. That they mm-hmm. would there would be political messaging in here, and I can almost guarantee you that would be one of the, you know, no one else would use a gun except for this one character, would be the yeah. one with like fucking shotguns everywhere like guns hidden underneath his like in his clothing you know you Mm -hmm. have a fucking gun in his shoe um like even like even like probably going as far as like he has like guns like implanted in his body or something i I, yeah i think that that would be something that they they probably would hit on and unfortunately i think they would probably miss yeah i I could see them definitely making an all out gun guy. I, I think just in general that that seems to be really on point. Um, the, the missing thing I could, is completely on the table. You know, I I could see them using the character to make like a statement on guns, almost like the same way that Red Dawn makes the statement on guns, where um, in the beginning of the movie, as the Russians are invading, you see a truck that has a bumper sticker that's like, you with my gun, you're going to pry it out of my dead hands or whatever then two seconds later a russian guy pries that guy's gun out of his hands and like in red dawn what i personally feel the statement that they're making they're clearly making a statement about those types of people those gun crazy people and everything and how in the end they would just die or 
get folded or fall in line, whatever it is. That's my yeah. own personal opinion. I think that's the statement they're making. I feel that the running man would make an attempt to make a statement like that with a gun such a character in a modern version. Oh, sure. You know, he, he's got yeah. guns and they, he shoots himself. I'm sure would be the only, he shoots himself or Arnold uses one of his guns against him. I mean, it's probably the only real way you could have that character die and not have it just be like a, not just a character that's just like there for the sake of jerking off for guns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're, you're hundred percent right. Arnold would shove his gun back into his face, back into his face yeah. and tell him to pop off or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Pop off. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you're but you're right. Like, or or it would be even if it's not overtly gun character, it would be a militaristic character. Mm-hmm. Even, yeah, like basically, you're you right. You're getting a kind of, kind of the same thing. Yeah, definitely, dude, for fucking sure. Yeah, I'd, a couple other quick things that I had. I had um, I in a modern version, I there's going to have to be challenges. I think that involve like mental stuff, you know, it wouldn't all be physical challenges just as a way of like adding some variety to the overall game, which of course would then mean different types of obstacles. So you may on top of stalkers have a gauntlet of, pendulum razors or something like that, that they got to get through or, or like some type of puzzle to be solved along the way. So I, I can see maybe some more mental challenges as a way to, um, to shake up the, the course a little bit. Um, I could also um, see the elements of, I could also see the rebels being a part of the, the new version I just don't know if we're going to get the big action sequence of like these armed militant rebels kind of taking back everything. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if we'd get that in a modern version. I, we might get in some equivalent of it, like hackers dismantle a code and thus opening up, you know, a vault of real footage that has yeah. or that was previously manipulated, something along those lines. I just, I just don't know if we would get the, 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 the overall thing with the rebels and the militant rebels and stuff. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think they'd be a part, but they either need to be, um, they, they would need to be more of a part or le- like, I, I know exactly what you're saying. Like they kind of would need to be more of a part throughout in a modern mm-hmm. adaptation. I mean, I just know they would be like, they would, it, it would be from the very beginning. Like, you know, the prison break would be because of the, you know, because they want to get back to the, um, you know, to the Rebel Alliance or whatever the hell they call themselves, and it's really not until like mid Prison Break, or or actually even towards the end of the Prison Break that you kind of like get, you know, you kind of get um, uh, Yafikoto and um, who? Oh gosh, Weiss. Weiss. Thank you, yeah. um, Weiss and Laughlin. Right? Yes, Weiss yeah. and Laughlin. Yeah, Weiss uh, and Laughlin. Yeah, yeah, Laughlin. Um, it's not even like till the end of the Prison Break that you sort of get that, you know, like. Or actually, no. After the prison break, when they're removing their collars, that mm-hmm. this is a cop. This is one of the people that was stepping on our necks. We're the ones fighting against him. So it's really not even until after the prison break that you get the the sort of like information that like, oh, okay. So it's more. It was more than just a prison break. Like these yeah. people, Lock, Lachlan and uh, and Weiss, needed to get out to get back to the rebels, um, whereas Richards was just going along for the ride. Right. And like the prison break thing, um, I personally didn't get a lot of clarity as to why until that scene evolved and definitely until like the aftermath and everything like in the beginning of it, it kind of had this feeling of like like a uh, almost like a gratuitous kind of prison break scene, you know, to kind of remind everybody that we're in an action movie. Um, But as it goes on, I think you get a little bit, you obviously get way more substance in the context of what's actually going on. Right. Exactly. It was a little, 
again, just I think this is one of those things that would keep us from calling this a perfect movie. Um, you know, like we're we're kind mm-hmm. of sitting around like, yeah. why are they doing this again? But um, right. But you know, I mean, not that you don't, not that you, you know, like we get the open with Arnold, the the butcher of Bakersfield. Um, we get the open, so like we know that like he has motivation to get out of prison, but we don't. We still we're still not totally clear where um, Lachlan and um, and Weiss fit into it. So. Right, right, exactly. And I do love that they made it the Wilshire Correctional Facility. Yep. So just somewhere, somewhere here on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles, there's just a massive freaking prison type situation. <laughs> yeah, which... there's a, it's like a big quarry where they're like, I don't know, popping, pulling steel out. I mean, I don't, I don't even know what's going yeah, on. Yeah, you're right. It, it is honestly the least Wilshire Boulevard landscape out of the entire out of the entire movie. Right, like that is, right. That might be the one unbelievable thing out of the entire movie That's it. is just that there was a prison on Wilshire Boulevard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what are some things, action scenes or anything else that you know wouldn't work in a modern film? And I do have definitely a big one to get into. So what do you have first? Um, how about, well, how about we get into your big one first? If I okay. Can, might have the same thing. It's for me, this is one that like, just like the Fast and the Furious B movie that we watched. Yeah. This whole relationship between Ben and Amber being founded on rapey behavior. It just would not work in like, it wouldn't work in a modern setting. And like, I, I actually think that like out of all of the elements of the film, this is like this is like my only one that I am like one hundred percent confident would not work. Oh, dude, you are you are so right. I mean, they they're introduced to each other by him basically kidnapping her in her own apartment and mm-hmm. tying her up um, in just like a negligee, which not right. really not really sure why she's working out in that, but that's <laughs> neither here nor there. Um, I mean, like she gets like, she's like tied up and also in a very, again, in a very sort of, um, male gaze sort of way. She's even tied up. Mm-hmm. Um, and like Maria Cachito Alonso looks fucking great. Like she looks fantastic, but right. it, it's, it's very leery in a, in a way that even like, as I was watching it, I'm like, Ooh, I, I like looking at her, but also in the scene, I feel weird looking at her yeah. and then we get to, and then we get to the, um, she has that conversation with the other ICS propaganda worker. Um, she has that conversation where like that woman is talking about like, Oh God, that guy could have raped you. And like, right. She's, but she's looking at him in a way that's like sensually talking about this massive fucking Oak tree of a human being raping a woman. Like she's kind of enjoying it. And it's sort of mm-hmm. like, there is no way this conversation happens in a fucking mainstream action movie in, in, in there's just no way anything like this gets gets to gets to the page in a, in right. a movie nowadays no way yeah dude it's just not happening and like when when we first or sorry amber like eventually throughout the film becomes like a strong female presence it, it yeah. basically it's it starts in the airport when she um yells and screams and kind of gets him it gets him in trouble it initiates that chase which thus puts him in jail to get him on the game show and stuff that strong woman trait would be apparent in like moment in second number one in a modern setting and stuff you may actually have her doing 
something that is like the exact opposite of like what people typically associate with femininity. She might end up being like a football coach or something like that in the, in the modern movie, but they're going to broadcast from moment number one, that she is like a strong female personality. This idea, the idea of this, like, I, I, like Florence Nightingale, Patty Hearst, Florida, Florence Nightingale syndrome, whatever it is, where like you're falling in love with people that are doing wrong to you. Like they would be Patty Hearst, not Florence Nightingale. But like um, that, I think we are so beyond that as a society. Like it's one thing for people to have a, a an encounter, like a like a hostile encounter, like and fall in love. Like maybe two people in the beginning of a movie are going for the same Uber and it amounts into a couple FUs back and forth or whatever in the end that they get, you know, they get back, they get together. That's a little different, you know, but um, to start off with the situation where this huge, massive muscular dude just kind of bulldozes this woman into submission without actually like physically beating the shit out of her. Right. This is, it's just, it's just totally not going to fly. And like, that was like, it's amazing how in, like when I first rewatched this, let's just call it this year's, this would probably have been like 2016, 2017. It was like Jess and I just kind of hanging out in her apartment in Cleveland one day watching it. It like, I picked up on it, but like, it wasn't like as cringeworthy as it is now. So even mm-hmm. in like four years, six years, six years, um, six years, that like my perspective can change so much. And like, you know, if my perspective has changed that much, that means like society's perspective on this topic has changed way more than mine has. Right. So, so, so like, um, this is something that it's just, it's just not even going to work. It like sticks out like a sore thumb amongst the, uh, the movie. And like I said, this, the only thing I think that wouldn't fit, everything else would be pretty much there and just jacked up versions of what we, what we saw in the 87 running man. Right, right, yeah. It's um, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna beat this horse anymore just because like we've we've covered it. But you're so right. Um, it's just there there would be other ways to sort of introduce Amber as both like an obviously really hot woman, but also a mm-hmm. strong character. I mean, like like real real simple fix when they first meet each other, she beats the shit out of him in, yeah. in the apartment. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't necessarily right. win. But she like you know breaks his nose, gives him bloody, bloodies his nose, gives him a black eye, like just it you know all while in the negligee or whatever, like yeah, kicks the shit out of him, um and that and that goes and then like so he he's almost like sort of forced to then like mm-hmm. sort of tie her up and then by the way then you can tie her up less sensually um by the way Arnold, um right. <laughs> so yeah it, you're a hundred percent right um I think there are a couple other things that stick out but not because of like their content necessarily, but because I think we wouldn't have time for them. Well, one thing because of content, one thing because of time. So okay. we probably wouldn't have time for two sultry dance numbers that yeah. go from be- I mean, like I kind of forgot they go like they're fully blown. The first one is at least it's, it's like a full blown four and a half minutes or so, or I think three and a half minutes or four minutes of like the dance sequence with like the show prep and everything else. But I mean, that thing mm-hmm. goes from beginning to end and then they do it again and it lasts like two and a half or three minutes. And I'm just yeah. like, there's no way both of those would make a modern movie. There is a chance maybe one of them would sort of stick in partially, but there's no way we get like that full dance number. 
No, not not at all. Like there, there would be like you know little snips of show preparation and things like that, but we're not going to get the full on fucking dance number. Not a chance in hell, especially when between the two that could easily eat up eight is five to eight minutes of screen time. It's not happening. We're going to kick that number down to maybe like thirty seconds to a minute, and yep. it's intercut with other things. Yep. Um. And and just one last thing here, real quick. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? Drew Carey. Wayne Brady, Mayim Bialik, Steve Harvey playing Killian. Oh, dude. I could get Drew Carey well, in that. Like, I, I could imagine it, but could you imagine that they would, these like beloved hosts would. Oh, they wouldn't sign on to it. Not a fucking That's chance. That's what I mean. There's no <laughs> yeah, fucking chance like, that that like, Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could definitely see it. And in my mind, it looks awesome, actually. Oh, the image yes. of Steve Harvey up there forgetting the names of the stalkers and stuff would just be – it looks awesome to me. But that is going to be one of those, like, um, image killer type things. Yep. Like, you know how – like, I was, there's a show called Episodes, like Matt LeBlanc is in oh, yeah. and stuff. Yep. And um, in, th- throughout the course of the show – uh, Matt ends up being a TV show host or whatever. And like, long story short is um, some of some things happen that drive him into this lifestyle. And he has in this progression of him becoming a game show host, his agent has this conversation with him. It's just like, Hey, well, people like don't really like see you as a movie star anymore. They see you as a game show host. So do you want to host a game show? And with these guys, like with Drew Carey and Steve Harvey and stuff like, you know, they, you could still go do stand up if they wanted to, but they're game show hosts now. And like when you are a game show host and you start to get associated with other things, like, yeah, I'm sure it's cool if Steve Harvey wants to take a, a break from hosting a game show to maybe do a McDonald's commercial or something like that. Right. But when you're talking about like, Hey, can we get Steve Harvey to be on this show where like they kill people and like, it's really crazy extravagant, a lot of blood and stuff like a network is going to frown down on that. Like they're not going to, especially with Wayne Brady, like Wayne Brady ain't getting anywhere near that, you know? Like, so um, he's had to work so hard on his image over the course of his career and everything like that. There's no way that after he killed all those people on Chappelle show, I mean, he's been a real tough task building them back up. (laughs) Right. Exactly. That's where, no, you're actually kind of right on that. Like he's, he wasn't really in family programming for a while after that. Like I'm, pretty positive after Chappelle show Wayne Brady like was not the Wayne Brady as we knew him it took him time to kind of get back to like a, bit, a household yeah. name I'm Wayne Brady bitch um, <laughs> right <laughs> is Wayne like, Brady gonna have to choke a bitch one um, of the best lines of Chappelle show Lord. ever by the way <laughs> and like hands down just a genius sketch overall oh too, my god it's unbelievable. but yes. it, it's funny though like you like i could see maybe not uh my Bialik, just simply because like i i haven't really I, i'm not i'm not the biggest fan of hers i haven't really seen her do jeopardy yet but like in the weirdest of weird ways i could see drew carey wayne brady and steve harvey all doing really well in this role and mm-hmm. each killian would be very different but i could just see them doing it very well yeah, I, me too. I, I definitely can on that. And like, just the image of Drew Carey now, like thin, kind of older Drew Carey, seems to be finding a home in this um, imagination image of mine pretty easily. Mm-hmm. So yeah. definitely do. So who uh, to you gave the standout performance? I, I have to go with Richard Dawson. I, I, yeah. I, as much as I enjoy some of the other things that other people and, and uh, you know, always enjoy Arnold, 
Richard Dawson is just fucking incredible. Like, mm-hmm. I, obviously, he has a. It's he's not just a game show host. Obviously, he had an acting background. He's on Hogan's Heroes forever. Um, right. He's got an extensive acting background, but like, he's very you know he's very very good in the in the scenes where you know he's he's you know he's schmoozing Arnold. He's threatening Arnold. He's you know he's setting things up behind the scenes. But man, oh, does he fucking come alive when he becomes Killian, the game show host? And he yeah. gets to sort of put on that familiar jacket, but but really sort of flex his muscles in it and like show that like how ridiculous he can be. It like it really is just a. It, it's one of those things. Like if if they if they were to remake this, it wouldn't be a game show host. It would just be an actor. Um, and it's sort of there's just like something about like that format that it, like a game show host would work so well at because it's something that they just do second nature, and it mm-hmm. would make perfect sense to do it. And so this casting made perfect sense and they just picked the right guy for it. He just, it like, he just has like that, that demeanor that is very game show host. But like when he sort of turns that notch up to 11, he feels insidious at the same time. It's fucking great. I know he, by, this was my, my answer to, even as a kid, I was blown away by this performance. Cause I will tell you, like, it, it sounds really dumb, but like, as a kid, I was like, I did not know game show hosts could do this. Like, I didn't know they could be in movies and I had no idea that Richard Dawson was an actor and stuff. And when I was blown away as a kid, it was almost twice as being blown away, like as an adult and stuff. I was like, wow, like this guy's really fucking got Mm -hmm. it, you know? And you're right, man. Like when he is putting on that game show host jacket, it is fucking just incredible to watch him. And then once he is not on the show, he nails the off camera personality just so well, this cocky prick asshole, yep. like all the, he just nails it in this really, really great way. So yeah, dude, I, I 100% agree with you on Richard Dawson being the, the standout performer, but um, who do you think who stole a couple scenes for you? Boy, I, I, since you brought him up, I really love when we do get to see Jesse Ventura. Um, mm-hmm. he's one of those actors that like when he's deployed the right way, he's really like enjoyable, fun, like a thinking of the predator, like his, yeah. his scenes in the predator are fucking great. Like it, it's, it's the perfect amount of Jesse Ventura. And so like him early on doing the exercise video, like a fucking maniac, um, is great. Him as the, uh, you know, the sideline, you know, the, essentially the sideline reporter, you know, the retired, the retired stalker, but like the sideline reporter, um, mm-hmm. For the Running Man is, is pretty perfect, and then like his sort of blow up in the way that like you know the, the blow up that he and Richard uh, Richard Dawson have that he and Killian have I should say um, when he's like he's gonna like they're basically they're giving him something other than his Captain Freedom uniform to go it's right. like this robotic thing, and it, you can imagine the blow up that an actor would have with their director about some costuming choice or some some acting choice or something they don't agree with. And it's like you're watching these two petulant people kind of go head to head. And Mm -hmm. like his little spat is just so fucking perfect. Like it just sort of encapsulates the the idea that like they want you to go out there and fucking kill a human being. But like you like you're just like you're too fucking pouty about the the costume you have to wear. So you're not going to go do it. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah, Jesse Ventura was also mine. Like, okay. I got to tell you, I, I loved that we both kind of picked the same guy here because you're hitting it so on the head there. Like, he's wearing this, like, dumb, clanky, like, metal fucking costume and stuff. He's being all pouty about it. Man, I used to do this, like, I used to do this stuff, like, back overseas, like, gladiator shit, all this other yeah. kind of stuff. You know, this real, like, kind of pouty, but, like, powerfully pouty persona of his and everything. And, like, I, I watched Predator 
sometime within a week or two after watching Prey. It might have easily been like two days later. So I've, I've had like Jesse Ventura kind of like on the brain over the course of the last month. Well, I mean, if you, and, put, on, if you put it on an 80s action movie, he's going to be in it. Yeah, so, pretty much right. in it. Right, right. And like it just – it was kind of cool to go back to a time where I was able to tolerate Jesse Ventura. Yeah. And like, you know, I, I guess like in my – my 38 years of existence and, you know, I've only been consciously aware of Jesse Ventura for like maybe 30 of those 38 years. And like, it seems like, you know, I, I, I don't really know what he's like now. I'm assuming, is he like QAnon type guy? I, now? I actually is, think he's, he's, if, if I could be wrong on this. Uh, and, you know, someone who listens to plenty of uh, QAnon adjacent uh, podcasts, not in support in examination of what the fuck's going on. Um, he hasn't yeah. come up. He hasn't come up. So I think he's more. Um, I think he's more kind of along the lines of like a libertarian type. So okay, you gotcha. know, it's like you know he's a Republican that wants to smoke pot. So right, exactly, and like um, you know, I, I figured he was either in the cube trap or somewhere in the, you know the Republican spectrum of beliefs and everything, and like that's it doesn't necessarily fly with me today and like even like maybe 10 15 years ago 20 years ago when he was like the governor of minnesota and stuff like you know it was cool to like see him come out like in favor of pot but that's pretty much the only thing that i remembered really like agreeing with him on yeah and and so for me it watching this movie it just kind of took me back to a time where like all this guy was was just an actor, a wrestler, you know, big meathead dude who was on camera and stuff. Yep. He wasn't making decisions for a state or involved in like, you know, when the QAnon conspiracies, if he is, or if he is and whatever it is, or even just the libertarian thing, which we all know is Republicans, you know, wearing, wearing hippie, wearing tie dye shirts instead of uh, American flag shirts. But um, <laughs> so like, I, it just, was cool to like experience him in this way again to like, just look at him and be like, okay, all you are is just doing an awesome job playing this character that is just couldn't be any more designed for you. You know, I, I got to sit back and enjoy it and then and not really have to like do the whole, like oh just fucking Ventura kind of thing, which I would do now if I found out he was going to be on a, a news program for sure. Right. Yeah. Back when, uh, yeah, I miss the days of him delivering. He he was one of those people as a as a as a supporting cast cast member in action movies. One of the guys that you could rely on to obviously because he had the bona fides. He was a Navy SEAL for Christ's sake. Um, right. He had the bona fides, but like also knew how to time a one liner, knew how to time a joke, like mm-hmm. could really handle himself on camera in a way yeah. that like very. Very. That's why a lot of wrestlers don't really ever make it out of the WWE because they can't really handle, you know, doing that kind of stuff. And he could, and it, like you're right, like really nice to see this version of Jesse Ventura. Really nice. Yeah, dude. It 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 really is. And then watching Predator sometime in the same area too. Like just it's just is like man, like like what happens to people over time? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like yep. what the. Fox News will be like the weed did it to him, but um, I will guarantee you it is not the marijuana. That's for sure. No, pretty much no. (laughs) No, Right. So, what were some of the things that you sort of forgot about that seemed new upon this viewing? I I definitely forgot that the timeline coincides with Trump becoming president, and Mm -hmm. sort of kind of serves as a warning of like, 
hey, this is what happens if all the government institutions are up for sale to whomever. Um, yeah. Which is something that obviously didn't like it didn't happen while Trump was in the was in the White House, but like it was very clear that more so than ever before, the 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 highest seat of government in the United States was very much open to persuasion from like anybody. I mean, fucking yeah. You you could. I mean, it feels like Stephen Miller ran the White House for a couple months <laughs> because <laughs> of the things he told Trump. It feels like Jared Kushner ran the White House for a year just because of the things he told him. Oh yeah, I guarantee that if you and I would go up to him and tell him he's the greatest thing ever, we could what we could have done for the country. Who knows? So like yep. maybe something actually positive and maybe. stuff. Yeah, and, yeah, and like you know, we especially hitting on the head about everything being up for sale it, more in these times now where you know the fucking he could be accused of selling our secrets and shit like that. You know, it just it seems to be more relevant now about the government being up for sale and, right. and everything like that. Did right. definitely, dude. I completely agree with you. That was a newer thing to me. Like a lot of the, um, a lot of the non-game centric stuff was was felt very new to me. And you know, when people talk about this movie and stuff, like the first probably three to four sentences out of their mouth are things about the game. Like, Hey, if you were to describe this game, Oh, it's like, Hey, you know, there's this game and people try to kill Arnold and stuff, you know, but I really like, and this is even to go back to when I had watched it for the first time again, a couple of years ago, this all idea with the rebels and everything like that. It, um, it really like just kind of, it just kind of like gave me a refresher, I guess that there was all this stuff going on. And, like when I think about like just movies in general, the game itself might not be enough to get the movie made. It almost feels like there has to be this external element yeah. of like mm-hmm. taking down the, the big bad guys. Right. Um, which like, I will tell you, like I'm, I'm totally, totally cool with, like I, I felt it fit, but because my focus is more on the game, the stalkers, the cool costuming and stuff, a lot of the things that the rebels are actually fighting for kind of gets, it just kind of gets lost on me and stuff, you know, because you have, it's almost like you're taking the movie and saying like 60% of it here is fucking dope. And then the other 30%, we just kind of needed there to make it a movie. Yeah, dude, you're, you're a hundred, you're so right. And I think it's, I think a a big reason for that is just like how, I don't want to say how underwritten the, the rebels were because I mean, they're fully fledged characters. Um, like we, in fact, like we get a couple of scenes with Mick Fleetwood that like sort of give you a very good idea of what he's about. Um, like, you know, like there's enough picture painted there, but I think the, the, the general cause of the rebels is it's, it basically, it's just, well, we're rebelling like, Mm -hmm. okay, well, yes, you're rebels. That's sort of what you do, but like, (laughs) what is it besides jamming a satellite that you're trying to do? Um, right. Are you trying to overthrow the government? Are you just trying to get a certain message out? Like, there's their end goals aren't really complete, other than like, we're the rebels. We're going to try to stop ICS. Yeah, like, and that, that's okay. honestly how most rebels are. Really. Right. Like, you know, like, but 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 still, there's if this movie was a rebellion movie, we could focus on that but instead this isn't really a rebellion movie you know like so right all that stuff does kind of get like lost on us and everything and it's it is kind of like to the point where we almost like 
it would be nice to know that stuff, but the fact that we don't know it really doesn't like affect my overall opinion no. of the movie. So it just like shows like exactly like what this element of the story means to me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it doesn't it doesn't like radically change anything. Um, it it probably it, again if they were to, if this was a modern movie, this rebel thing would be much more significant. We would have much mm-hmm. more. We have much clearer goals. Um, it, it just yeah, it, it's. It, they could have. They literally could have cut the whole thing out and just made it about like some prisoners that escaped, and now they have to escape again, and it would still mostly work. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those one of the parts that I would almost guarantee you that that was a in terms of like getting away from the the Stephen King uh, or Richard Bachman, however you want to look at it, um, right? Getting away from the the source material. That's probably. I'm guessing that that was one of the biggest elements that got away from the source material. Yeah, yeah, I could definitely, I could definitely see that happening for fucking sure, dude. Uh, and oh, real, oh. just real quickly here. Also, I totally, I one hundred percent. Since I haven't seen this in probably like two years or a year and a half, I, in that time, I one hundred percent totally forgot that Mick Fleetwood was in this. Yeah, and, and, I know. Yeah, Zappa yeah. was in this. Um, right, and it just this is what now. This is something that I'm sort of reminded of every single time that I do see this movie that. Maria Conchito Alonso looks fucking fantastic. I mean, she is legitimate smoke show. Mm-hmm. And I'm always, and granted, she's been a working actress since like the 70s. Um, and she still is now. But I'm always just sort of like, I'm always a little bit surprised that she did not, that she didn't pop a little harder in the 80s. That, like, yeah. Like, I, I, I can see. You can see that you know the inherent talent, obviously the inherent beauty, um, and it feels like and, and like after this she was in like Predator Two, I think. Um, but like in terms of her like in terms of her like bigger movie roles, they were all they were all Spanish language. Um, previously, she's from Cuba. Uh, they're all Spanish language first, and then obviously she makes a jump to some of these action movies, and then she just does a lot of TV after that. I mean, maybe she just didn't want to necessarily, but I'm just very surprised that she wasn't more of a more of an 80s starlet, 80s, early 90s starlet. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. Like, I would have anything thought she might have had one of those, like, Valeria Galino moments who, like, you know, there was this yeah. point in time where, like, after Rain Man, like, she had this blow up and stuff like that, yep. like, leading into the 90s even with the Hot Shots Hot movies. Shots. Yep. So, like, I'm kind of surprised that she didn't get the same kind of thing because she was definitely very, very attractive and oh, yeah. more attractive than most um, people that I've seen come out of the 80s. That's for fucking sure. <laughs> so she, like, like she's even wearing that like when she's like looking for the footage in the office, she like looks good in a very concealing like outfit. Like yeah. it's just like like that like you're just sort of like, oh, that's how good looking you are. Like you're not even right. wearing anything flashy and you look good. Yeah, when you can look good in 80s fashion, like that definitely says a fucking lot. That is for sure right there, dude. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, I'm I'm definitely surprised that she didn't have that blow up um blow up too cuz that is definitely someone who is way more attractive than like your typical um 80s movie star and yeah. without all the 80s kind of appearance stuff that goes along with right, it, like the right. make- makeup and everything. So <laughs> All right, dude. So um I guess so like what do you in this question six here so like what do you think kept this from a sequel and what's keeping the proposed reboot and development hell um i'll start off by saying that um 
okay, right now the remake of like I can understand this not getting a sequel. Okay, like a sequel would just right. basically be the, the Running Man two. It's the it's the same concept, maybe without any rebels, but the course is jacked up to death. And there's more stalkers, all that kind of stuff. Right. So like right. I, I can understand it not getting a sequel. Um, when it comes to the remake, though, this was actually the remake is under the helm of Edgar Wright, who um, <clears throat> so like I. In terms of like articles that I found about this particular subject, yeah, there's a lot of articles that are kind of concentrated around the time that the announcement was made. And this was like on February 19th of 2021, Paramount Pictures made the announcement that they were going to have a new film adaptation of the novel, one that's going to be more faithful to the source material. Okay. Edgar Wright's going to redirect and reimagine the story with the help of Michael Bacall, who is going to pen the screenplay. Um, Simon Kinberg and Audrey Chan are going to produce through um, Kinsberg's genre film banner, uh, genre films banner, and alongside Nira Park um, and Edgar Wright's Complete Fiction. So all these production companies are supposed to team up and do this. Um, I will tell you that aside from the articles that I've seen in 2021 about the announcements, there's not really much going on beyond that. I mean, I found an article from like, like, what is this here? Like movie or slash film.com. Like one of those listicles about like what should and should not be done. Yeah. So I'm only safe to assume that the project is still sort of going forward, but we just haven't really, I don't believe that there's been any casting or anything like that. So I'm hoping that, this one does um, does kind of stick around because I I would welcome Edgar Wright like I'm I have enjoyed a lot of his movies. Yeah. There's some things of his I have not seen, um, but he does knowing when I listen to all these like film podcasts and stuff like that. No matter what, Edgar Wright is always a guy that they talk about with like a really great knowledge of film and just a general yes. appreciation yes. of cinema. So like. That is the reason that I am comfortable and cool with him taking on the project. There would be some names in there, I think, that might like raise some red flags. Like if you were to say Josh Trank is going to get it, like I'd, I'd <laughs> yeah. probably say we're, we're screwed. But, um, <laughs> but like you know, the fact that Edgar Wright is getting it, it gives me it does give me a little bit of like I guess comfort in knowing that the project is with somebody who at least gives a shit about film in general yeah. um i i kind of am into the idea of the story being a little more true to the book while i'm only in like the first like three chapters of the book it's there are some differences and stuff the most noticeable difference is that they have like a month to complete the uh the course and not and just like sense. the the three, three hours and yeah. stuff like that. So like there's some um, differences in the, in the book and in the movie. Actually, there's a, a lot of differences, which is why Stephen King didn't like it. So um, being that they made a it movie that was a little bit more true to the book mm -hmm. with the exception of the time periods, I'm cool with this with this reboot and stuff like that. I'm totally fine with it. I'm, I'm always okay with reboots when a film nerd is yeah. like the person in charge of it. So like when I hear that Edgar Wright's in charge of it, um, that that's like a, you know, that's reassuring because he's a film and pop culture nerd. Um, right. Like I don't, have you ever seen um, he and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost's original TV show Spaced? No, I have not. 
it's Ooh, interesting. It is pretty fantastic, actually. It's I, I think it's only on for a couple seasons, and since it's British, it's only like fourteen episodes or something, um, right? Sixteen episodes, something like that. I mean, it, it'd be a quick watch, but like you, you really see where all of those guys like cut their teeth, and you see this very clear reverence and care into like their pop culture references, into mm-hmm. what they're paying homage to, that kind of thing, and like that's sort of like a an Edgar Wright hallmark. Like, yeah, it, like, you know, with the, you know, like with Shaun of the Dead paying so much care to the of the dead, um, you know, of the dead franchise and movie so much so that, um, you know, like George Romero, like reached out to him to be like, I think they, I think all three of them are extras in one of the later Romero movies. OK, I think they're all like zombies in, a, in a, one of the, again, Land of yeah. the Dead, I think. That makes sense to me. I have heard that yeah. somewhere before. Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah, you're, you do. You're 100 percent right. Like anytime like a film nerd, pop culture nerd takes a hold of something. It to me, what it says is that somebody get we've hired somebody that like gives a shit. Right. And um, while, you know, I don't I'll just, you know, obviously, like I'm assuming Michael Bay cares at some point in time, but not in the way that like a guy like Edgar Wright is going to care about the movie. Like Michael Bay could never make another movie and still be worth billions of dollars. Like Edgar Wright is like a working film guy and stuff. While I'm sure he's got money, he doesn't have Michael Bay money. No. So, you know, being that Edgar Wright is a completely different kind of film personality than Michael Bay is, I can see him giving this project the attention that it needs and maybe even multiple um, consultations with uh, Stephen King. Like I could see him really doing what it takes to make sure that they get this movie right. And that could easily be the reason that why over a year, like we're looking at Jesus Christ, like close to 16, 17 months. That's probably why we haven't heard that much about it. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're, you're definitely right. Um, man. The, I'll tell you what, the only other person that I think I would trust, I shouldn't say the only other one, but the only one, other one that comes to mind who I know is a film nerd and a pop culture nerd and like really into sort of the filmmaking process that I think this, this that a, a Running Man reboot would kind of be interesting to see, our boy Gareth Evans, to see, yeah. to see him do <laughs> would actually be fucking fantastic too. But yeah, I, yeah, I, I just, I don't know, like I, I think, I think you're hitting on all the right things just about like why it's just sitting here. Yeah, I want to see Gareth Evans do everything, in my opinion. Yes. Like the, let, his, I, there's the whole thing with his Deathstroke movie with um, Joe Manganiello that never amounted to anything. Like, I am just like, why the hell did you not make that Warner Brothers? That was a dumb fucking move on yep. your part. So, like, yeah, I want him to do everything and everything um, when it comes to movies. That's his, for sure. His TV, his TV show is pretty fucking fantastic. Um, oh, uh, that gangs of London! It's fucking fantastic. It, like there, I mean, there's a fucking there's a whole sequence with these um, with these African um, this like African gang going mm-hmm. through the like one of the main central banks of London and chopping off all the bankers' hands. Wow, insane! <laughs> like this yeah. this show is fucking insane, and that's like. One of the least crazy things that happens in this show. Yeah, well, now that uh, Peaky Fookin' Blinders is over with, I need a new British uh, gang show to um, to, 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 to check out. One. That's for sure. It's a good one, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> very, very nice, dude. Yeah, right. so that is going to wrap that up, and we can get into the aftermath, for Let's sure. Let's get into it. So why do you think we both chose action movies? I, 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 I You know, because we didn't just we didn't like discuss this beforehand that we were going to do 
this was like total surprise to both of us, right? Yeah, it was actually it was like, but it's it's a surprise that makes a lot of sense, you know. And like when I go back and think about it, like these are the type of movies that like when I was a kid, like you said earlier and having these like sleepovers over my friend's house, like these are the types of movies that we watched. Like it was like almost like our parents like didn't really care as long as people were not like getting drilled sexually on screen. They were like, okay, they could watch explosions and guns and the F bomb and everything like that. So I just have like a a really like strong connection to these movies. Um, Also like, what we're going to do eighties dramas. Like, no, I don't, I don't think so. Right. (laughs) Um, right. But comedies like there may be a couple 80s comedies that are worth like revisiting especially maybe some of the earlier like cameron crowe stuff like fast times and um you maybe uh, even some of like Police the breakfast Academy club Bre- yeah breakfast, like something like that yes yeah, yeah like those are definitely worth re-watching and like if you were to have told me last week like hey we're gonna do this I'd, i would have been like oh that's awesome because i haven't like watched a lot of 80s comedies mm-hmm. but um this is just in terms of cinema, this is just one of the things that like the, the, the eighties did the best. Uh, like they still, in many ways, like I, I don't necessarily know if they've done these kind of movies since, like at least in terms of some of these premises, like I, the, the idea of turning New York into a prison Island was fucking genius. And mm-hmm. that came out of the eighties. So that's, it, it's kind of like the, this is like the, the staple genre of the, of the decade and stuff, you know, and these movies like the running man and and red dawn are still amazing even to this day whereas some of the comedy stuff like I don't know, it just may not be funny anymore the re, the references are probably outdated right. like right. some of the some of the situations are probably like stuff that you and I are maybe familiar with but just don't necessarily relate to cuz we're not like in high school anymore so some of the other genres from this decade I don't necessarily believe are as ripe for a discussion that you and I would both be so excited about. I totally agree um, that there's just so much, I think, I think nostalgia fuels the biggest part of it for both of us. Um, and like, I love how you described, like, you're right. That's like where I, some of the like first eighties action movies I watched were like at sleepovers and shit like that. And you're right. I think our, I think our parents were just like, well, no breasts, but it's okay if these people get fucking just completely obliterated by a Russian tank, like that's right. fine. Uh, but no boobs right. allowed. Um, right. But like, yeah, like, yeah, it, it's, it's that nostalgia and it's this, the, I, I think we're, we kind of, we both mentioned it before that like, this is one of the things that like was done really at its peak. The, these action, you know, these sci-fi action movies, these sort of high concept, these are high concept action movies, right? Like mm-hmm. we're, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about this full scale invasion of the United States by a, by a, a communist coalition. We're talking right. about a game show or a company that controls essentially the entire United States and puts prisoners into a game show to be killed. Like these are high concept action movies that kind of don't really get made anymore. Um, not right. kind of, they definitely don't get made anymore. So like, this is sort of the, this is sort of like maybe the best era of these, you know, of these types of movies, of these action movies. Certainly it's before the, the heavy use of CGI. Not that, not that CGI is bad, because we've seen it in movies recently where it's, it works very well. Um, but like this is this to me is sort of like this to me is like sort of like the the most like the best the best version of sort of action filmmaking that you can do in an analog way. You know, mm-hmm. explosions, squibs, stunt people, um, practical sets, or if you have to miniatures and shit. Like this right. is the best. This is the best era of it by far. 
by fucking far dude yeah like i i have no problem with cgi like god only knows like i watch a lot of stuff that contains cgi but i noticed that like when we watch movies that have cgi in them from like the 90s maybe going into like the early 2000s like if we watch them today they don't age all that well no. like the, the the cgi looks bad like you know we've, we've just grown out of it like when we were in high school that was probably the coolest fucking thing in the world but we've just grown out of it these movies like i could watch them whenever and still be impressed still want to watch yep. them again and stuff you know and it's all because of the, the way that they handle it, the way that the product is presented with all these special effects. And it's almost like they're like, okay, we could, and I'm sure like in the eighties, you know, they, they, they didn't have the technology, but like if they had the technology, like I, I feel it might hurt this movie if it was all like CGI. Oh yeah. It, but by eighties and nineties CGI standards. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And I think we're sort of, I think we're sort of at least more recently, there've been more movies that have kind of turned back the clock on prioritizing the sort of physical action and practical action um, over over the CGI. Whereas, like mm-hmm. thinking about like Mad Max Fury Road, there's plenty of CGI in that movie. I'm not suggesting to the other otherwise, but all the big key stunts, all the big key things that, that are going to bring your eyes that you know that attract eyes, those are all practical. Those are yeah. vehicles being blown up and flipped. Those are people launching themselves across. You know. Like those fucking, what are they called? Like the polecats or whatever. Those are actual right. people on some apparatuses that look very dangerous, quite frankly. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but because of that, because of that that care that's put into it, it is like so, it is so noticeable how much better it looks than mm-hmm. just figuring out a way to CGI some characters in. Um, right. You know, we've, we've already mentioned the raid now once, so let's mention it again. The, the preference for let's just fucking throw people around and beat them up. And shoot them for, you know, not shoot them for real, but like, you know, let's fire some squibs off. Let's fire some, you know, fake bullets off as, as opposed to CGIing everything. It just looks better. And more recently, the when CGI was used, it was used so well in Prey that like it fits very seamlessly into that movie that yeah. I'm not I'm not focusing on the, you know, the invisible predator necessarily. I'm looking at all the other action that's happening around it like that's how how well the how well the cgi fits into the scene and it's not like overwhelming in the scene right oh god yeah you're right jesus christ that is a really good example with prey it is not overwhelming at all yeah. like god yeah really good stuff there for fucking sure yeah. dude i completely agree uh how about um just some other candidates anything else that you had in mind okay so um Lethal Weapon 87, just a classic. Yeah. Like, that was another nostalgic-filled one that I thought could have been fun to do. Um, Maximum Overdrive in 86, but since we're spooky season is next month, I just, like, kind of steered away from I, something along those lines, you know? I did the same know? thing, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I did the same thing. Do you have any more? Yeah, I got two more. Okay, um, go ahead, go ahead. Co- Cobra from 86. Um, never seen it. Uh, the Butcher Billy did a great line of Tom York 80s action movie inspired paintings uh, two years ago. Mm-hmm. And he has one of Tom York. That's the cover of Cobra. That's fucking awesome. That, so like, I, 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 yeah, that's that's one of those movies that I have never seen it either. I've seen like clips and like, you know, a few minutes of it here and there. But yeah. like that that movie poster is fucking awesome. Yeah. It, like it's ingrained in my mind. Like I remember I've seen that, that at the video store and we just never watched it. You know, mm-hmm. it was like, should I watch 
Cobra or out for justice, you know, and I went with Seagal probably 90% of the time because that's when he was cool. Um, and then the last one, which um, I, I came really close to pulling the trigger on just because I watched it recently, um, was First Blood. Like, oh, yeah. And and I got to tell you, like, as there is so much to be said about that movie, but I it's not with the action. It's more or less like the commentary on veterans coming home from war and stuff. Mm -hmm. And like, dude, when I was watching that movie, like this first blood was one of these ones that once again, I might as well have just watched it for the first time because I'm so far removed from it. But that monologue that Stallone gives at the end, like just about had me in fucking tears, you know? So in terms of like, I guess non depressing discussion, conversation that, should be had and should definitely be had until the end of time about what these guys go through. I just have a feeling it was a little bit of a downer and like, especially because I I completely underestimated how moving that last scene of first blood actually is. And it is one of these things that just like, it just tears a fucking hole in you, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. Oh dude, it really is intense. First blood is really intense. And again, like we mentioned like in the last episode, that like undoubtedly Sly is the better actor between him and Arnold. Yeah, I mean it's mm-hmm. really not even that close. But just Arnold is just such a unique action presence that I'm right. I, I am kind of glad that we ended up going with an Arnold movie. So yeah, me me too. This was it, it was definitely the right decision in um in the end and stuff. And like I it just I don't know, man. It would have been it, it would have shifted the conversation from like eighties action stuff to an easy easy forty five minute block about what these vets go through what was portrayed in the movie and stuff. And it's just oh, yeah. like, I'd have probably cried on the podcast. So just to <laughs> save myself from that, I just thought it was better to go with more of like a action packed kind of like, you know, movie you would, that you could watch no problem over and over yeah. again. And actually, and actually I think unintentionally we hit two sides of the spectrum with our movies. Mm-hmm. Mine is yeah. clearly very pro America, jingoistic, um, rah rah kind of movie, and yours is the exact opposite. Someone right. who used to work in that system, who used to be you know one of the one of the jingos, one of the p- people who was pro, you know I guess I don't know pro America. I love how they always give him, like Arnold like it's Ben Richards, John Smith, and you know like just right. like. Give him a fucking European name. But anyway, um, clearly like a very, you know, someone who at one point in time worked for the state and Mm -hmm. now is turning against the state. So we do have sort of like both sides of of the spectrum kind of being touched by both our movies. Again, like we said, we didn't plan this. It's very unintentional that we're getting a a look at two different ways to sort of approach this kind of subject matter. Of course. Definitely, dude. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, yeah, so like you, so similar, I was, I was really kind of dead set on the Lost Boys for a little bit. Yeah. And, oh God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a story. It's got both Corey's in it. So, I mean, how much more eighties does it get? Um, yeah. but, but like in my head, I'm like, you know what? We're going to do horror movies in like three weeks. So right. just immediately kind of pop, like cross that one off the list. And then I thought about the predator, but I, I did sort of, I was sort of kind of hesitant because I thought, you know what? We're going to end up talking about fucking prey. I can guarantee it. We're going to stumble our way into 30 minutes of the new one. And I kind of have a feeling that at some point in time in the near future, we'll be talking about it anyway. 
Yeah, I you're a hundred percent right on that. Yes, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I intend on working some prey talk into next month. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Like it's it's gonna it's gonna pop up. So no doubt. Yeah, about it. It's too good not it, to. Yeah, it's like it is. It really fucking is. And like I, you're right. We would have because prey. It's like this recency bias kind of stuff. I have also had this feeling that like. Any anything that we would have talked about in that movie, I think, would have immediately gotten compared to other Predator movies. Yes, and there are some clunkers in the franchise. Oh, for fucking sure. Yes, and like I just had this feeling that it's like, okay, so you know, what do you think about this part of Predator? Oh, that part was really good. It fucking sucked in Predator, like the um the Shane Black one. You know what I'm saying? And like, yes. oh, it wasn't. Here's AVP. Let's talk about. Yeah, you're right. It, we, it's um we would have gotten lost in the discussion because I the clunkers I think at least conversationally would have kind of shadowed some of the good stuff about the original Predator because with anything that's a clunker there's usually more dialogue and stuff that's bad than stuff that's amazing. So. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly exactly right. You're exactly right. I think I think there's an opportunity possibly to do a whole thing about the Predator franchise and sort of just to sort of as a way to do that just gloss over the you know the Shane Black one that I kind of forgot that exists, I completely right. forgot that exists. Um, yeah, gloss over. I don't think AVP is bad, but it's like it, it's not a it's not a Predator movie, and it, and AVP Requiem it's not a it, whatever. It's a fucking yeah, it, those it, are comic those are, to me. Those aren't aliens or Predator movies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but anyway, we won't get we won't get any farther into that. So I'm glad I'm glad we didn't pick, I'm glad I didn't pick that. I'm glad we kind of stuck to. I'm obviously glad that we we did what we did. I really loved. I will watch The Running Man any point in time, like yeah. any point in time. And I'm really glad that I got like a more recent revisit of Red Dawn. Um, not, it's definitely not a movie that I'll watch just like, man, I, I'm fixed. I'm jonesing for some Red Dawn, but right. <laughs> like was really, was really cool to see all of these superstars from the eighties, you know, and they're like when they were just like babies basically. And that, that was just really fun. And but real quickly here, Am I like the only one, not the only, I hate when people say things like that, but like I, when Jennifer Grey got her nose redone, got her rhinoplasty, um, <laughs> while she still looked really good, she looked like a totally, totally different human being. Um, like I guess Michael Douglas, who she was friends with, you know, probably still is friends with, but like was back in the 80s, like just didn't recognize her. Like it, she looked so different and she knew him for years. Um, huh. I, to me, well, like, again, she, not like she didn't, not like she doesn't look, you know, well, whatever. Point being, I think that she had a much more, like, folksy and regular look with her bigger nose that I was, like, just into. Interesting. I, yeah. I, I just it, don't know what it is. She looks much more like a Hollywood star post-nose job and more like kind of like a regular approachable person pre-nose job. Yeah. Oh, I can definitely see it. I'm looking at the kind of side by sides of the before and afters and stuff like, yeah, you're right. No, she looks definitely more normal with the nose job and stuff. But th there is something about like a unusual nose that um, can really like define a person. And for the most part, it kind of makes them look attractive. Like, I mean, I think she looks really, I, it's Jennifer Gray. She looks fantastic. But like, I mean, like, I really think that's one of those things I'm like, I, I, I identify that's how I identify her as like having, you know, it's got a big nose, but like it suits her face. And I think she looks great. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. And tell, there are rare examples of this, but like there are times where it really fucking it really fucking works. I know exactly what you mean. I, I just just one of those observations. Like I did. It, it's not like she doesn't. It's not like she suddenly got like weird looking or something. I mean, she looks great post nose job. It's just very it, like if you if you told me that like if you told me that Jennifer Grey just stopped acting and then like I picked up on like 90s Jennifer Grey, I would have just assumed that they were different people. Yeah, no, I can see that. I can definitely understand that for sure, dude. But, <laughs> anyway, I, I did like just one of those things. I like, just sort of popped into my head as I was watching. I'm like, huh, that's I don't know, whatever, you know. Anyway, <laughs> um, so all right, so the next movie we're gonna go to, we're gonna we're gonna be or the next movie, the next episode that we're gonna be doing, we're gonna be doing our our full blown movie pitches, which we, kind of, I mean, we we did with um uh we did with uh, this is how you lose the time war. Um, you did a movie pitch, I did a TV pitch. Um, right. But in this case, we're going to be doing um, completely original movie pitches uh, that are that are uh, there's going to be more rules, obviously, but it's going to our movies have to take place in the 1980s, not just 80s inspired. Um, right. So can you give me any like nuggets, any little hints about where your brain is right now as we head into the next episode? OK, I'm at either an idea of a really crazy game, um, some type of television's hold over society or the idea of the um the one company kind of taking it over like like an ocp robocop type yeah. thing. like i mean those are my three kind of ideas that i'm three neighborhoods that i'm kind of working in right now gotcha gotcha okay that's gonna be pretty interesting um we were real into like companies taking over none too i guess they they were taking over them <laughs> in the 1980s um Okay, so I was so kind of kind of working in at least right now. My ideas are working in sort of there's two very clear ideas, um, and they're both they're both horror movies though. Um, okay, one would be sort of like one of the things that we were obsessed with in the 1980s is going back and in our movies refighting and winning Vietnam. Um, right, which is right, <laughs> like you know, like no, don't tell people we lost that. We got to go back to Rambo back to win Vietnam. Um, right. So like sort of, sort of um, you know trying to rewin Vietnam. Um, so it'd be kind of like a mili- like a military horror movie, basically. Um, mm-hmm. So there's that sort of camp, and it, or or even thinking about like Russian military stuff too. So, but either yeah. way, kind of a military horror idea, or or leaning towards a one of the ubiquitous teen horror movies of the 1980s, and I gotcha. and going that route. But either way, I'm, I'm leaning towards a horror movie. Interesting. Okay, definitely. I'm sure whatever it's going to be is awesome. And you got a lot of different 80s things to choose from as far as horror stuff that's popular and even some kind of newer things to choose from in the 80s, like body horror and shit like yeah. that. Yeah. So I think it, I think, uh, yeah, I think we're, we're both, I have a feeling we're both going to have some really fucking interesting stuff. Like I'm, there's no reason for me to hold back like my weirdest impulses on this one because it's, the 80s. Right. it's fine. Yeah, somebody has thought of it or thought of something even weirder. That's how it goes. (laughs) All right. Uh, Any last thoughts here before we wrap up? I do not have any last thoughts, man. This is a lot of fun getting to rewatch these movies over and over again. And um, I'll probably be watching, I'll probably watch The Running Man at least maybe one other time this year. So it's guaranteed. Guaranteed. It's good. It'll happen. (laughs) Yep. All right. Why don't you lead us out of here? I definitely will, dude. Everybody out there, thank you so much for tuning into this installment of the Occasionalist Podcast. It's Adam Chabluski and Matthew Pagel wishing you both the best, or wishing you all the best, and we will see you next time. Thank you.